Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. All right, everybody. We are live with the Working Fans Podcast, and we are about to talk some AEW future main eventers. All I see, Producer Joe, is in the comments. We'll get to his list then. Bit. Also, a little programming note. When this episode airs on audio, it will include the SummerSlam 2022 review that we did right after the event and Ric Flair's last match card. We'll have a review of that as well. So, when's Ric Flair's last match going to be? <laughs> Supposedly, it happened already. Let's hope it did. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, we can talk a little bit about that first before we get into this list here. Talking about future main eventers. Ric Flair. Did you get to watch this? I don't even know if we really talked. I did. One of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my life. I thought I was watching a man pass out and die in the ring. So He feigned a heart attack at one point and tore through an eye poke. (laughs) We've seen him feign a heart attack before. This one was a lot more realistic. Yeah, he didn't feign the last one into an eye poke, though. That one was more of an angle. This was more like... You know, this was a transitional spot. <laughs> I don't ever want to see it again, including the one I just watched. Well, why don't we we'll kick it off here? I'll read producer Joe's list here. This is our top five, who we think might be the top five future AEW main event talents. AJ, you keep a little list here. Oh, um, I didn't even, we didn't even put Hook down as one of the ones to watch. All right. Sorry, I, I just added Hook to that list. Yeah, I don't want to add on that too. That card was amazing. The main event was rough. It was a good card. Oh too. no, the card was absolutely amazing. I, I love the card. I mean, we knew that there wasn't going to be any spectacular title changes, anything like that. No titles that were on the line. We're going to change hands due to the fact that it was not a card put on by a promotion. It was put on by you know an individual. So it took a little bit of the suspense away for me. It but was, it was a fun card. It was Jim Crockett Promotions? I don't know what you're implying. <laughs> it was Conrad or something. <laughs> wink wink i actually all right we'll stop i'm gonna put the brakes on this one more time because i do want to say one good thing about that event was i thought they did a really good job of making it feel important with all the cameos by cody rhodes Dolph ziggler undertaker people in the crowd jerry lawler making that appearance i thought was really cool i thought it was nice to see his daughter ashley we haven't seen her in years i've seen his daughter charlotte a lot on wwe tv but it was great to see ashley Ashley, yeah. Saw Megan get involved. <laughs> yeah, Megan. She was not roasted, by the way, on the roast, if you saw the roast. Megan was the one female member of his family who was not mentioned. <laughs> I think you're implying something there. Probably what? because of her connection to Jim Crockett promotions. Right, right. Her strong, her strong <laughs> connections to David Crockett. First list, producer Joe. He's got MJF, Hook, Darby Allen, Daniel Garcia, and Anna Jay. So my first thought, and this is just me, is we're going to see Darby Allen on a lot of these lists. 
Darby Allen, if you had asked me a year ago, if I thought he was going to be one of those main eventers, one of those special talents in AEW, I would have said absolutely. I have not enjoyed the use of Darby Allen over the last six months. I think he's been lost in the shuffle with Sting. I think he's been lost in the shuffle with his matches. And I think he's actually taken steps backwards, to be honest with you from what they've done in AEW. So let's do a sidebar here real quick about Darby because I was listening to a podcast with Jericho and Meltzer and they were Chronicle and Vince McMahon and WWE. And one of the things they talked about was talents that Triple H looked for. And Meltzer actually used Darby as an example saying that a couple months ago, I would have told him never go to WWE. He won't be happy there. He won't be used right. He's like, now I'm not so sure. I don't know what, you know, Triple H might be looking for. Yeah. Triple H is a different cat than obviously Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon never liked size, never like I mean, didn't like people without size, doesn't like people who didn't fit into a certain mold. Darby Allen has a much better chance now. And quite frankly, some of the people who left WWE, like your Adam Coles and people of that nature, actually now it could be regretful that they've left because they would fit better into a Triple H world. Absolutely. So my first list here is actually, I've got three people that were all sent to me. I'm not going to read them all at once. Don't worry. But I've got three people that were all sent to me by our favorite and our good friend, Randy Osga. Randy, actually, his list first is MJF, if he doesn't leave AEW. Which there's no guarantee now because I, I got to believe that's somebody who Triple H would love to get a hold of. Jungle Boy Jack Perry, who I agree with. Daniel Garcia, who I agree with. Ricky Starks, who I absolutely love. And now this person I think might fit in better in the WWE than I do in AEW. But hopefully he'll get a push. Ethan Page. I think hmm. Ethan Page is fantastic. And I just don't think he's given the mic enough like he was this week. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Ethan Page. I like the little angle they did with Stokey Hathaway. Well, it's interesting with Stokey Hathaway, but what's going on with his, what is it, what's his name, Dan Hop? Dan Lambert, Scorpio Sky. Exactly. So, so I'm interested to see where that's going, too. Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if Dan Lambert might be leaving. You know, it's the contract of MMA right now. Maybe with Scorpio Sky injured, we just figured, okay, let's find something for Ethan. And this might be a better fit. This might be one of those things where a negative turns out to be a positive for him. I mean, I like the group that they're putting together. If his two main stars are going to be Jade Cargill and Ethan Page going forward, and then the baddies, that's not a bad little section. He also has Lee there, too. Lee Moriarty. Yeah, Lee Moriarty's fantastic, too. Yeah, American top team. Yeah. Oh, so I don't know if you were struggling. Oh, yeah, you were. Yeah, I was struggling with it. I don't know why I couldn't think of American Top Team. All right. Well, and, and the tag team was men of the year. But Chris Zauha, he comes up from the Mothership Facebook group. The Mothership coming up big as always. They got Darby, Wardlow, MJF, and I think those will all be names you have to mention. But oh, the, yeah. the fourth one he has, he didn't get a fifth. Fourth one is Brian. And I don't know if he means Brian Danielson, but I'm not going to put Brian Danielson. Not in a future one. No, 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 no. Yeah. Brian Danielson's future is short-term, I believe. I do have Anthony Laterra, who is brought to us by Randy Osga. He has Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen again. Like I said, I, it's not that I don't think Darby Allen has the talent to be a future main eventer. I just don't like what they've done with him lately towards going towards the main event. MJF, who we haven't seen in a while. And then Daniel Garcia again. Awesome. Oh, hey. by the way, Tony Storm is his number five. That's awesome. Hey, AJ, I know you're keeping a tally of this list, too. Don't update us this week because it's a short list anyway. So I'll go in cold with a surprise. And Ooh. let's go cold. All right. We got Tia J. Zenos. I hope I'm saying that right from the Mothership Facebook group. 
You got MJF, if you don't consider him already, and he's not gone. Wardlow, Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen, and Hobbs. I might have to put Sammy Guevara on here since we keep hearing his name and he's not one of the people I was keeping track of. We'll keep an eye on uh, Sammy right now. Daniel Titus also added, we all know Chris Zalcha is the future of pro wrestling. Oh, 100%. We didn't even bother to put him on because of how much of a sure thing he is. Yeah, I'll read another one for you real quick, too. Sure. I got Sonny Martinez. He's got that aren't right now. Wardlow, Stark, Hobbs, Dante Martin, and Austin Gunn. Wow, Austin Gunn's an interesting one. I don't like Austin Gunn's mic skills to get to. I mean, it's not something. Now, I'm not saying he couldn't develop them, mm-hmm. but I just don't like his mic skills to get to a main event. He's more of that silly kind of just jackass, more of a player. I don't see it with him, but that just might be me. That's I've up. got Philip Griffith, Griffith, yep. and he's got Jungle Boy, who so far has not, to me, has not been on enough lists. Wheeler Yuta who I believe this is finally getting in there. Ricky Starks again. You talk about somebody with mic skills. It's hard to beat Ricky Starks with passion and mic skills. And then Darby Allen again. Oh, yeah, that's great. I got one for you you're going to love. Harry Priest of the Motherfix, Mother ugh, Mothership. That, that does not sound like a real name, Harry Priest. Priest. <laughs> P-R-E-C-E. He's got wow. Sting, Billy Gunn, Dustin Rhodes, Christian Cage, Hologram, Ric Flair. Or, he gave us an alternate list. Keep tabs on this one. Hob, Hook, Wardlow, FTR, either together or not. Interesting pick with FTR. That is an interesting argument. You could definitely argue that, because they've kind of basically... I think they're already main eventers. Yeah, they're one of the hottest acts right now in the company. Not not a bad list. I mean, I'm not going to knock anything. The first list was kind of funny because i could see something like that happening i have let's see looks like zach st john mrs st john's favorite baby boy and he's got ricky starks mark one now for the starks eater. we got jungle boy i'm surprised we haven't seen more jungle boy so far to be honest with you yeah. and you'll see what i mean when we go over the count but to me he's more of a sure thing powerhouse hobbs yep wardlow again and then here's an interesting one for you Malachi Black. Malachi Black. Interesting guy. It's been around the business for a while, but certainly. And someone to me that got was used appropriately immediately. Yeah. But since then, it's kind of fallen off with his usage. Absolutely. And I and Jungle Boy, too, to your point, too. I think, if anything, the mic skills he's done the last couple of weeks when he cut that promo, I thought that was like his first promo he really cut that was like, oh, okay, this guy can bring the heat. Yeah, he actually showed that he can talk. A lot of his stuff before that was bubblegum promos. Yeah. And to and because, you know, they're just we're trying to keep him as that teen idol. I thought they let him loose this week and I thought it was good. I'm gonna give you a couple lists here that I don't think really count. Sean McKinley of the Mother Face Mothership Facebook group, Omega's blow up doll, Sunny Kiss, Maki Ito. So we won't buy those. G Michael Curto from the Mother Mothership Facebook group has Rick Flair, David Arquette, the Invisible Man. Turf Ferguson, and I know you might want to count these guys. The Howard brothers, Clinton Ron. <laughs> First of all, Clinton and Ron are main eventers from way back, all the way back to their time when Clinton Howard was actually a main eventer on My Mother the Car, starring Jerry Van Dam. And then you have, of course, Ron Howard, who started off as Opie and then worked his way through Richie Cunningham, is now one of the top directors in the world. So know your main eventers, bitches. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I knew what Clint Howard starred on as a child. What? All right. Mike, uh, yeah, actually, I was kind of wondering if it was just me. Joe pointed out Jerry Van Dyke? Or do you it mean- is actually... Jerry Van Dyke is actually the little brother of Dick Van Dyke. He ended up being on coach later in life as the sidekick. I know. I think the issue is you called him Jerry Van Dam. Oh, shit. My bad. Jerry Van Dyke. But we're talking wrestling, so Van Dam just came out. Jerry Van Dam, the whole epic show, brother. (laughs) But he was the star of My Mother the Car in the 1960s at the same time as his brother was having the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh my goodness, I love it. Okay, I got Mike Flynn, MJF, for the sake of argument, Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, Wardlow, and oh, this is a nice one, Nick Wayne. Hmm. Nick Wayne is technically signed to an AEW contract. He's only 17 years old. They just haven't used him yet. That's interesting. That is one hell of a premonition for somebody they haven't used yet. It's a little hard to say this guy's going to be a future main eventer when we haven't seen him yet. It's true, it's true, but I, I like that they included him. All right, and then why don't you give me your list here? All right, so my list is going to have a lot of the names that we do. I think Wardlow definitely has the stuff to be a future main eventer. Ricky Starks definitely has what it takes to be a future main eventer. I am actually going to go with Hook. I think they're building something with Hook. I think he's someone that has that it factor. I am not going to go with MJF. The reason why I'm not going to go with MJF is because, to me, he's already a main eventer. He's already somebody in AEW who you could put in a main event at any time. And I'm not sure he's sticking around there. But I am going to go with Powerhouse Hobbs. And then I am going to go with Jungle Boy. All right. Very good list. I got I got Wardlow. I got Hobbs. I got Starks. I got Daniel Garcia because I don't know what anyone really, despite what anyone says, I think this guy has now shown he can hang on the mic and do it all. And last one, just to be a little different, we'll get back to Starks because I can see you picking your head with that one. Like, not in a bad way either. But I'm going to put in, just for a wild card, because I hope she does well, Jamie Hayter. Okay. I am glad you said Jamie Hayter. I think Jamie Hayter is one of the most underrated women in wrestling, period. Mm-hmm. What she does personality-wise and with her work in the ring is just as good as anybody in AEW. And it actually annoys me a little bit that she plays second fiddle to uh, Britt Baker. They're doing a battle of the belts. And I hope, it's, it's like, there's some, if you, if you want to change a title, I think it'd be a shocking. Have Jamie Hayter upset Thunder Rosa. That would be fun. I don't know if they'll do it. I wouldn't favor that the way that she's been booked. But Jamie Hayter has really impressed me in some of the most recent matches. Not only that, but she's someone who actually matches up well with Jade Cargill. So, yeah, I definitely like Hayter. And Daniel Garcia, too. Maybe we'll talk a little more about Garcia, too. I don't know how many votes he got. But the last couple like months, this guy, he's always delivered in the ring. But I have to say, as much as he fit in with the Blackpool Combat Club, the fact that he ended up doing this Jericho Appreciation Society has been awesome for him because now he's got he's got like the silly little hats and stuff and he's getting to cut these pro boats. I he, love his yeah. line where he says, yeah, that's right, the best technical sports entertainer. Right, right, right. And we all know that a sports entertainer always beats a pro wrestler. Yeah. yeah. No, we both love him. And he was – I wanted to put him on my list. I did. I just think that even though he is where he's at right now and got that win over Brian Danielson, I think that he's like a year away from being at that next level. All right. Well, why don't tell? Why don't we see uh, the fan stuff? What are some of these votes? All right. So number one was actually Wardlow with eight. Okay. Number two was Ricky Starks with seven. 
Mm. Number three was actually Powerhouse Hobbs. So that tag team, they actually got second and third because Hobbs got six. Jungle Boy then five with MJF tied at five. Four for Darby, four for Daniel Garcia, three for Hook, and two for Sammy Guevara. Because once I put him on the list, he got no more votes. (laughs) <laughs> so actually i think it's kind of good that mjf and darby are maybe towards the bottom a little bit because i think those guys you can only argue are main eventers although darby to your point maybe not the best booking the last few months but he's definitely had his run well i love the mjf booking they're really doing a lot with him <laughs> right now yeah, he's on fire <laughs> i mean my god the mic work he's been able to do for the last several months has been fantastic we're going to talk about a little WWE creative after we're done with this. So, But let's get to this. I, I like Hobbs, Hobbs and Starks in here because, to me, they really haven't had taste much of main event yet. And I think when we're talking future main eventers, we got to include them. Wardlow kind of danced with that main event storyline a little bit with MJF. but If we did this a month ago, do you think Hobbs would have gotten as many votes as he did doing it this week? No, the timing was crucial. This Same for Starks. Starks yeah. getting that. That little video package before and cutting that promo before he got turned on. And don't get me wrong, I think Stark still had a certain crowd of us who actually believe he's going in that direction. But I think Hobbs really has showed that intensity and that next level ability over the last couple weeks. Yeah, it's interesting. And they're booking Hobbs as a slightly more dominant right now, too. Like, Starks can't get past that power. But that, as we know, too might be a sign that Starks will probably pull it off when they finally meet. We'll see. The good thing is, is that every the five ones, if you want to look at it, that were in the top, Wardlow, Hobbs, Starks, Garcia, and Jungle Boy, have been booked really well over the last month. I also want to say producer Joe came back, and he did agree with me. Hater is a better choice than Anna Jay, so he actually liked our Jamie Hater pick. Now, I'm going to say, out of the three... Wardlow, Hobbs, and Starks. I think Wardlow is going to be number one here. I hate to say it because out of my out of the three, my favorite is Starks. Yeah, Ho- Hobbs think. is actually my second favorite. Same. Yeah, <laughs> and Wardlow's actually my third. I know, but the way the book it is, it's like you really see Wardlow's that guy that they're going to go. I- I'm going to go with Starks two, and I'll go with Hobbs three. I think we're in agreement, but yeah, and I think we're both kind of like. Ah, I wish it was freaking <laughs> the other way around. I think both of us, we saw Starks with NWA and we saw what he, what was a bunch of promise with NWA and to see what he's matured into over the last couple of years is absolutely phenomenal. And if he continues that growth, he literally could be the next, and this is going to be one hell of a shot. He could be this generation, Shawn Michaels with his work rate. I mean, yeah. I mean, who's to say that's, that's a hell of a, <laughs> you know, who knows who's the next Shawn Michaels, but he does have the promo skills. He does have the look. Even yeah. despite the size, there's something about him that turns heads. And- yeah, you forget, first of all, he's taller than people think he is. When you see him in there with other wrestlers that have good height, he's not actually that short. He's a little bit on the leaner physique, but it's because of his intensity, it makes up for it. I would concur. Let's talk a little WWE creative. The recent direction let's just kind of go briefly actually kind of combine both of these news first off what did we see i feel like we both liked what we saw this week we did starting with SummerSlam. right SummerSlam was one of those things that looked like it was just gonna be the drizzling shits ahead of time i mean obviously everybody wanted to see what brock and roman would do together but the rest of the card i don't think anybody was exactly popping off the page for it 
going, ooh, I can't wait for this. I don't even think people were excited about Brock and Roman because they've been done so many times. And I think the big thing everybody was talking about was almost in that first match with Bielair and Becky. And it was really that that group coming out of it, Bailey, Dakota, and Io. I think also it's been talked about now that that was one of the groups that was actually pitched to Vince. And Vince apparently had no interest in it. And people were like, hey, I got interest in it. And clearly he wanted Dakota back. Well, the thing is, Dakota was one of those people that under Triple H was really blossoming, and then all of a sudden, Triple H is gone, and Dakota Kai is not used correctly again. She plays that character so well. Same thing with Io Shirai. I I don't like her new name, Io Sky. I think that's just stupid. But I love the character that she plays. She plays that I don't give a shit, I'll fight anyone character, and she's still playing it. That's what she did this week with Bianca Belair. One of the better name changes in WWE, though. <laughs> Who knows what this would have been if Vince was still around. <laughs> yeah, that, well, she would have been EO not in the WWE. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I heard a, I wish I remember the podcast and the quote, but it was basically saying that although Triple H, you know, had a, he is interested in different talent, and he did really well with NXT for a little while, it, somebody made the uh, criticism, basically, that those people in NXT were never able to go over, get over on the main roster, to which I want to reply, and I think you'll have some more to say about this too. Maybe that's because Triple H wasn't the guy to make that decision on the main roster, and maybe those people that Triple H had pushed on NXT never really got a fair push on the main roster. First of all, anybody who made it up to the main roster from NXT that Triple H got over was immediately changed when they got to the main roster. Yeah, hell, it was happening to Ciampa until this week. Ciampa right. with a great win this week and was allowed to actually wrestle like Tommaso Ciampa. He was allowed to wrestle? Yeah. Up until this week, it was all just Ciampa sneak attacking people and being basically a spineless coward after he was the guy with the guts and the guy who stood up to everybody in NXT. Yeah, even though like he didn't get a win this week, just Mustafa Ali being in that triple threat match, getting some big spots and getting able to perform, it felt fresh. It felt different. I don't know. It felt a little different this week. And I heard quite a few people said, even though Raw is long with three hours, this was like one of the first weeks they were able to watch on through. And they didn't even have to fast forward too much. Look at how much they got over the Street Profits this week by having that singles match with Seth Rollins. Now, instead of looking at him as just the comedy team, you're starting to look at him as legitimate wrestlers. And not just the guy who we thought was going to get over, but Dawkins is getting over also. It's becoming legit. Yeah. The announced teams are better. Michael Cole at SummerSlam, one of my favorite lines was Corey Graves had made a comment to him. I liked you better when you weren't allowed to have an opinion. And Michael Cole said, yeah, well, a lot's changed in the last few weeks. <laughs> or a lot's changed recently. And I'm like, this dude, he has to be so happy right now. For almost 30 years, Michael Cole has had Vince McMahon screaming in his ear. For one week, he has not had him screaming in his ear. And guess what? Michael Cole became entertaining. Sounds better. He sounds like a wrestling broadcaster, like, talking about fans and everything like that. It, he sounds good. They I, also focused on the wrestling this week. They yeah. talked about the moves. They talked about the actual backgrounds of some of them. They brought up things that in the past they would not be allowed to do. And how much better was it? It was incredible. Yeah, Jimmy Smith sounded like even he was getting a little more 
used to this. I, uh, I wonder what it must be like for him. Yeah, all of a sudden, Jimmy Smith is being able to actually bring to the broadcast what we thought he would, uh, his legitimate background of actually calling moves and calling matches, and now he's being allowed to actually do that because, he t- once again, we don't have Vince in his ear. Right, that's interesting. Now, just to combine the two segments of the day, we'll finish with this. 5-3-1, all right, we talked about top AEW potential main eventers. It's a new landscape. I would have said Triple H. Vince McMahon, he might have been interested in Hobbs and Wardlow. Oh, I do want to mention one more thing real quick. I'm sorry. Johnny Gargano said that he's actually going to be announcing where he's going to be going soon. Do you think that that's coincidental with Triple H being put back in place? I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting. Gargano could have already signed somewhere, too. We won't know. And it's possible he could have been on Impact or something like that. But if I'm Johnny, I'm hoping he didn't sign somewhere soon. I'm hoping he... You you talk about somebody who absolutely loved Johnny Gargano and used him correctly. It's hard to beat his run with Triple H at the helm of NXT. I remember Hunter saying that Johnny Gargano was one of the last top white meat baby faces. So Joe just clocked in. He did a panel where he said he's staying at home for now. Right, which is fine. That was at StarCast, so that's fine. But I do have a feeling that if he is going somewhere, like, I mean, now is a much better looking landscape Landscape for him. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But I mean, he also might just be happy being a dad right now after many years of wrestling. But man, tell me like this flash of the castle, like you're looking for opponents for Uso. Yeah, I know Ciampa's a heel, but somehow we get Ciampa and Gargano. Yeah, I'd love to see Ciampa and Gargano back. That'd be fantastic. I'm wondering if we see Candice LeRae before we see Johnny Gargano. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, she's still technically under contract. She just went on leave to actually have the baby. You know, what's interesting, too, is they got this class of the castle coming up. And what's his name? Dragunov there. He just had to relinquish the NXT UK championship. And I kind of wondered. I don't know. I didn't look at any spoilers. I know they're doing a tournament right now. But if we'll end up seeing the NXT UK champion finals or maybe whoever the champion is makes an appearance at this event i'm sad to see dragging off have to re- relinquish the belt though i love that guy yeah he's one of the he's one of the best for sure but i, I hope uh, do you think there's a possibility we get an nxt uk presence on this card why would you not this right. is a chance to actually introduce them to a global audience why not put them over absolutely that freaking weekend live dynamite wednesday live rampage friday you, then you, we have the clash of the castle at 1 p.m on saturday and then there's an nxt show the following day i think it's going to be the afternoon and then we have AEW all out sunday yeah. night it's going to be a lot of wrestling to watch. I got, I got um, Labor Day weekend. That's my last big bread day. I'm pissed. <laughs> dude, I want to pitch something to you real quick. And this is just yeah. an idea. So we're doing Drew coming home. Drew, Drew's coming home. He's going up against Roman Reigns. What we know is that the Usos get involved every time Roman's in trouble. Sure. They just saved him with Brock. They get involved in it. What if we did a lumberjack match and we surrounded the ring with the UK NXT tag as lumberjacks. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Get some of these guys on T. I still want the match. I still like I still want matches. Don't get me wrong. You can have the match with them, but then actually now here's the problem and Randy's going to put it up there. Does Drew win? I was going to ask you that too. Here's how you make one of them a star. They're all surrounding the ring. Your biggest villain from NXT UK costs Drew. Oh. Sets up a match you can do it the next NXT UK or any NXT pay-per-view. Drew versus your biggest heel. How about this, though? The Usos are about to, like, help Roman. Tyler Bate, let's say, or something like that, makes the save. 
stops the interference, and then Drew gets to win. You could do it that way, too. I mean, you absolutely can. I just don't see Drew winning. I don't see him being the one ending the... I want to get at with you, okay? Because I think Drew is going to pull this off, but... Well, you think Drew's winning. I do, but that's the thing, right? That's where... Okay, this is what's great about this, because they're doing this over in Europe. They've made such a big deal about Drew. There's a great story for him winning this, but because... Even though some people are pissed off about it, but WWE has done such a good job of making Roman as the guy, you really have doubt. And like your your opinion here is just as valid. It would be anyway, but I mean, this is like I could see either one happening. Well, here's the major thing also. I don't believe anybody has ever won the world championship or the universal championship overseas. I know they've won in Canada. Don't I don't include Canada. But I don't think outside of North America, anybody has ever won the WWE world championship. I could be wrong. It did not happen on that SummerSlam many years ago. That was the Intercontinental title. Flair, actually, who was champ at the time. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Randy Savage, I believe, was champ at the time. and He was defending against Warrior. Flair interfered and got both men thrown out, or if there was a count out on somebody. But yeah, so Randy, to answer your question, me and AJ are going to disagree on this one. I think Drew is going to get it done, but I will absolutely not be surprised. And that's the weird thing, right? Isn't it, like, Drew's kind of the underdog here, though, right? Well, he's got to be the underdog. You're talking about a 700-day reign. By the time he gets to it, it's going to be 700, almost 50 days or something like that, or even longer. Here we have a successful cash-in. The only way he does it eventually is if Drew actually wins the title in Europe, yeah, and then gets attacked, and actually, if he does it there, how interesting would that be? Austin Theory leaves Scotland with the Universal Title. That would be crazy. I think you got to send these people home happy, but we'll see. Does Braun Breaker lose to JD? No, no. In my dream world, absolutely. <laughs> I like if we could get the Irish Ace back, though, a little bit here. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I enjoy this character where he's talking about hurting people and talking about, oh, I see that joint right there, and this is what I can do. That's kind of cool. But I like the Irish Ace better also. I like Jordan Devlin. Will Triple H bring one of these guys up soon? Maybe a Braun Breaker comes up quicker than we think, too. He could. I'm not sure if he's ready. So I see some stumbling blocks, especially on his mic work still, where you can see him hesitating before he speaks. So let's wrap this up then. Out of all the potential main eventers we had on our list today, you're Triple H. Who's the one guy you think he might want? To me, it's either MJF or Starks. I mean, don't get me wrong. Anybody's going to want Wardlow. The guy looks like a fucking million dollars. Or Hobbs, same thing. To me, the two guys that I would want, if I'm Triple H, it's actually Ricky Starks. Interesting. I'll throw one other name out there too, Jungle Boy, because he could be that white meat baby faced. And given, you know, Luke Perry was his dad and that whole history and everything like that, I could see him being a big one over there as well. And you can always do what Christian did. And I know some people disliked it because they thought it was horrible for him saying about his dad. But, you know, I, I thought it was good heat. And to answer this question, Randy, I asked him before we got here, do more people from AEW go to WWE now? Yes. Not necessarily that, you know, there's contracts and stuff. But let's put it this way. It's more enticing now than it was before. If you were the kind of wrestler who wasn't worried about your money and you were worried about your creative and your booking, you might have been like, no way. Now, a lot more people might go, oh, okay, the crazy old man is gone. Maybe well, look, there's already talk of Naomi and Sasha being back. Which to me, that's a layup, right? I mean, I think you yeah. have to do that. If you can get that done, you got a three-lady faction over here jumping on Bianca. 
why not bring back the tag champs? You know, and you talk, yeah, especially with Becky being hurt. How easy would this be? You want a huge pop next week on Raw? You want people to go absolutely ape shit? Have the three of them jumping on Bianca Belair and have Sasha Banks music hits, and out comes Naomi and Sasha. How about this? How about you hold off and then you do a six woman match on the pay per view? And then Baylor says, I'm going to have a surprise tea. I'll have some people with me. And then you have Sasha and Naomi. But the, pro- but the problem is once you say, I'm going to have surprise people with me, I don't know. The, crowd, the crowd's automatically going to know who it is. But is that a bad thing? Let's remember CM Punk when they had hinted that. <laughs> we had to open with that. But, you know, I don't know. I think it, do, it could do be. Do you cool. think that Sasha, and I love Sasha, I think Sasha is absolutely amazing, a main eventer on any level. Do you think her and Naomi in a six woman tag match is the same as CM Punk? <laughs> no, I don't. Especially CM Punk in Chicago. So you're trying to build buzz about how different the promotion is now and how much it's changed and how great the future is. What would do it more than just having that real instantaneous oh shit moment of their back? I understand that. I'm just saying too, like if you want to come out of a pay-per-view with positive feedback, those two being back, Drew yeah. winning the world title, some NXT UK talent getting over. Now that being said, I worry about how long you could hold off with them anyway. And here's why. Not because I don't trust Hunter and the people around him, but Vince has kind of, before he left, did a real good job of getting rid of a lot of the talent. <laughs> so it's like, I'm trying to like look like who's available right now to work to well, keep those fresh. I know Adam Shear, Braun Strowman, has said never say never when asked about going back to the WWE. And then the other interesting one that you could see in the future is what about Bray Wyatt? Yeah. I think he's definitely a possibility. Randy Osgood, one more question here. Does CM Punk come back at AEW All Out? I'm kind of hit or miss on this. I would say creatively, that might have been the plan. But when he was talking on that Comic-Con, like it sounds like he shattered his foot. And that could keep you out for a little while longer. Sorry. Yeah, no, I cut off my mic on purpose because I was answering my phone. Vince McMahon was calling me to complain about all these people giving him a hard time. And I didn't want that to be played on the broadcast. I didn't think it was fair. (laughs) Yeah, I think that at Comic-Con, he made it sound like... Like he won't be back anytime soon. He's in a walking boot. He's not like yours truly who's doing this after having a camera shoved down his nose this morning into his throat and finding out that he tore a muscle in his abdomen. And here I am live and in Technicolor. So CM Punk, maybe it's time you nut up, buddy. There you go. All right, guys. I think that's going to do it for this week. Again, when this release is on the audio, we'll have the SummerSlam review. We'll have Ric Flair's last match review. Thanks for tuning in as always. And we'll see you ringside. The Pro Wrestling Vault. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com or LanceByChance.com. WrestleVille. It's where wrestling lives. Welcome back for a special SummerSlam review brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault Volume 1 and Lance by Chance, written by Vinny Barry, available at WrestleVille.com, Super Vows, and Pade De, written by Kevin Kelton, available on Amazon.com, where you can also get I'll Be Here All Week, written by Ward Anderson, and Blood and Fire, written by The Sheet. We are brought to you by the great people over at Connecticut People Records, and since it is so late, I'm going to bring in a 
AJ Strange Brew to talk SummerSlam 2022. And I would say, at least in my opinion, I was looking forward to this event. I look forward to it every year, but especially with Vince McMahon not there, I was interested to see maybe what the first fingerprints of the next regime would be. If this is a taste of what we're going to get from this new regime sign me up i enjoyed it a lot more than a lot of the events this year so really good out of the box before the event i kind of had some pre-show thoughts i was 50 50 on austin theory cashing in it seemed like it would be the right time he was teasing towards it but then i was also thinking like why not hold it off i figured there'd be one surprise on the show I thought it might be The Fiend. My choices were Roman, Bianca, Usos, McAfee, Liv, Lashley, Logan Paul, and Balor Priest. So I was close with most of those. I didn't know this was in a football stadium going into it. I know he had pushed it for money in the bank and then that fell apart. So I assumed this was just going to be an indoor arena. I think they said arena at a couple points. I thought with Flair moving away from the fairgrounds that maybe they were going to hold it there. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that would have been nice. But Nissan is a good stadium. It is where the Oilers, not the Oilers, sorry, the Titans, the old Oilers used to play. So it is a great place to watch sports. I just don't like the sound in the open arena. I think that sometimes it's hard to gauge the crowd in an open arena. And sometimes it feels like you don't have the momentum that you do have from the crowd. Definitely now, Randy Osga reading our thoughts. Show started off hot with the women's match, and let's get to that ladies' match. You had Bianca versus Becky to kick off the show. What did you think about this in that first spot of the night? I think it's a good way to start the night. I think people are really behind Bianca right now, and obviously Becky Lynch always delivers, and it was a good way to turn Becky Lynch face. The crowd, similar to Seth Rollins, The crowd wants to cheer for Becky, even when she's doing this gimmick that she's doing right now. The crowd wants to be behind her. So why not give the people what they want? And Bianca got that win kind of getting back for the loss last year. So it was nice how that story came around. And it was a good match. I mean, I thought it was solid. Sometimes their timing's a little off just because I think of how strong Bianca is and how light Becky Lynch is. I think sometimes she overpowers her a little too much. But overall, I think their chemistry's good. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Bianca got the win in 15-10. And The Fiend was not the surprise because Bailey comes out at the end of the match. Dakota Kai comes out at the end of the match. And then when I thought enough people couldn't have come out, Io Shirai comes out at the end of the match. Am I wrong or is her new name Io Sky? Because they said it multiple times. So the announcer, first Michael Cole said Io Shirai, and then Corey Graves multiple times afterwards said Io Sky. And then there is an article, and we will give credit to him. I, I looked up on PW Insider. They did say that there is a name change and that it is actually going to be Io Sky going forward. And that's weird because usually when you get that kind of odd name change, it's It's a Vince move. I know Io Shirai used to be the princess of the sky, so it's not that it doesn't work. It was just... It, it was an odd move for such a forward-thinking move because... I think that it's something that they like to do. I think it's kind of a little homage to her nickname and putting it together. And I just think that they, they believe that with WWE's audience being more children, that it might be easier for them to say EO Sky than it is to say EO Shirai. Yeah, and... 
just because Vince is gone doesn't mean that the philosophies he implanted aren't there anymore. And true. I mean, I wrote, would Bianca have won if Vince was still there? And in the same vein, would this faction have come out and would he have put three women together had Vince still been there? Well, if you think about it, these are all people that Triple H was very much behind when he was running NXT. He was a big fan of Dakota Kai, who, by the way, was let go by Vince. That was the next question I had for you. I mean, Dakota Kai was literally let go to a point where Corey Graves pointed out, I didn't think she had a contract here. And she came back with a different look, different music. I enjoyed it. And this is one of those things like I was interested in Raw anyways. Like I'm going to be keeping up with the WWE pay-per-views more now that Vince is gone. But now like I'm even going to watch Raw and SmackDown more because look at this angle coming out of this. This is interesting. This is something that can hook you for TV. If this is a taste of what's coming, I'm going to be sitting myself on the couch each week next to Randy Oska to make sure I check out Raw. Next match up on the card was one that got a lot of press when Logan Paul signed. Logan Paul versus The Miz. And the first question I have for you is how long has Ciampa been with The Miz? Because that caught me off guard. This has been a weird storyline because whoever The Miz has been wrestling, basically Ciampa's been attacking, but only for like the last two weeks has he actually come out with The Miz arm in arm. Before that, he was just kind of randomly attacking people that The Miz was wrestling. He did it to AJ Styles, did it to different wrestlers, hence AJ Styles coming out and actually saving Paul and getting rid of Ciampa. But yeah, it's a weird pairing. This match, once again, Logan Paul looking really good in the ring. And it's one of those signings where this is probably one of the few signings where it's good that they went to somebody outside of wrestling. It's not too often that they do it that I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. But between his WrestleMania match and this match, Logan Paul looks great for a WWE superstar. He looks like a WWE superstar. So far, he's performing like a WWE superstar. And he's got something ahead of time that a lot of superstars don't have when they come in. He's got a large, large fan base already. So I think it's a great signing. Yeah, now Logan Paul gets the win in 14 minutes and 15 seconds. This was followed by a Brock Lesnar hype video. And then a Maximum Male Models video, which I couldn't tell if this was... A promo spot for the male models. If it was a commercial for the water, it was good to see Max Dupree back, but that was about the only thing. This feels like a Vince gimmick, but I enjoy that they're not doing the Vince thing and just cutting off these old storylines. They're continuing on with it, they're correcting course. I feel comfortable watching this because I'm guessing not. I've never seen a, first of all, a Nestle Pure Life water commercial. So that's a first. But secondly, yeah, this was something. Yeah. And water is not something you have to advertise. Like, if you need it, you'll find it. Yeah. Especially two dudes just put, and don't get me wrong. I know there's a market for it. I'm not knocking anybody who enjoyed it, but I don't turn into a wrestling event to see dudes pouring waters all over themselves. No, it definitely seemed like a TV spot. And Randy Oz, 
Jessica bringing up a good question. Can we get Logan Paul versus Pat McAfee sometime down the road? That would be a great match because those are the two newest people along with Bad Bunny that have stepped in the ring and have looked as good as they have. And once again, both of them have tremendous followings on social media. So you're talking about people would want to see this. So, hey, good job of booking there, Randy. Glad to see you're working for the new WWE. Now, this was followed by a Roman Reigns hype video, which was followed by Lashley versus Theory. And this was a good enough match, but I wrote it kind of blended in. It kind of hit one of those low spots where, I mean, it was a short match. Lashley won in four minutes, 42 seconds. And I thought Theory was more likely to cash in after such a short loss. Now, I do have to tell you, with this crowd, because of the football stadium, you couldn't tell how over some people were. Bobby Lashley had no problem with the crowd showing how over he was. This is a guy, the almighty, who is over to the hilt. If you're going to put somebody over Roman Reigns eventually, this might be the guy to do it because he is on fire right now. Yeah, now, I enjoyed the match, even though it was short. But like I said, the shortness of the match led me to believe he was cashing in later in the so I had a feeling he was going to catch in. I thought the same thing you did. Typically, when somebody loses in that fashion earlier in the evening, they do something to make it up to him. And as a matter of fact, the same thing happened when he lost to Lashley the last time. He ended up winning the money in the bank. Yeah. This was followed by a Kurt Angle biography commercial. Have Oof. you watched the newest round of biographies yet? I have not watched all of them yet, but I will be tuning into the Kurt Angle one. It looks fascinating. It looks like it's going to delve into his children, delve into how everything affected his life. It looks fascinating. Yeah, they played this a couple times, and both times I saw it, I was like, oof, there was one I was going to check out. They got you emotionally invested with this. This was followed by The Judgment Day, Balor and Priest versus The Mysterios. And this match, it was a good tag match. I was keeping an eye on this match because once again, with Vince being out, I looked at how would tag teams be treated and especially something you built up to here. And while it was a good tag match, the Mysterios winning in 11.08, that was not the ultimate focus of this match with Edge finally making his return with that great brood style entrance. What did you think of this match? Yeah, the match was inconsequential, to be honest with you. It was a way to bring Edge back again. It it really had nothing to do with the tag match. Uh, It's not like I don't think he's going to be paired up with the Mysterios going forward, where they're going to be like the new brood or something. It's just basically Edge versus the Judgment Day. The one thing I am happy about with it is that Rhea Ripley is back because she had faced those medical problems when she accidentally kneed herself in the skull and she had all those medical problems right afterwards because of it. So to see her back and performing again very happy about that yeah and i noticed with the first match when bailey eo and dakota faced off with bianca becky kind of stood up with her so you're seeing definite foes pop up for people and you're seeing alliances you saw it at the end of that match and you saw it at the end of this match where edge sided with the mysterios like you said i don't think it's gonna become a three-man team but we are setting up angles we're setting up alliances and Less in a haphazard way. It might just be wait, my, in my own wait, head right now. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Joe. I got to ask you. Are you suggesting that in the WWE, they might actually use logic, build storylines, and do things that make sense? That's what I was about to say. I don't know if it's in my own head, like if I'm projecting it on WWE since Vince isn't there, but... <sighs> 
the stories that were presented in this show that we saw didn't necessarily come out of nowhere. I mean, they are, you are seeing new facets of storytelling so, and it's going to come slowly. It's not going to be overnight, but I'm I enjoying what they're doing so far. I got to tell you, you've got 10 year old AJ Strange Brew and he's sitting here and he's thinking back to a time called the 80s, this magical time in wrestling. And I'm thinking back to when storylines made sense for the last time in the WWE. And I'm getting a little teary eyed because it hasn't happened in the last 30 years. No, Vince's. And we talked about this randy with a good question do we get trios titles in wwe yeah you have you have a trios of titles you have the intercontinental title the world title and you have the u.s title there's three titles for you my first instinct is to say no we don't but think about it this way if aew is introducing trios titles triple h is a little more inclined to compete down the road i don't think it's out of the question maybe introduce it in nxt they will pop up somewhere they'll try to make it sound like it's something original they're doing it won't be trios titles they'll be like we've got triple titles that's yeah yeah. (laughs) this match was followed by a kevin owens hype video which me and my brother both got excited for because he hasn't been on tv in a while and i'm hoping that with vince gone maybe this is triple h's time to create a storyline out of that like push him somehow i'm excited to see what he does triple h has always been a proponent of kevin owens or Kevin Steen, if you prefer. I loved what he did with him in, uh, when he was in NXT. Hopefully, we'll get more of that Kevin Owens and a little less of the Kevin Owens show, but I love it. Yes, now, this was followed by a match that going into it, I mean, I watched SmackDown last night, and I was annoyed with Corbin's tactics for annoying McAfee, but when they get down to the storyline of these guys were teammates, and you see two football players that made their way to the WWE, And these guys, I wouldn't give them a WrestleMania level match. I don't even know if I'd put this on Royal Rumble, but SummerSlam felt like the right place for it. And I thought they built it up real well. See, I was annoyed by the buildup just because it was silly antics and stuff like that. And that's just not my thing. However, I did enjoy the match. I I always find Pat McAfee to be way more athletic than you expect an NFL kicker to be. And I thought that they kind of beat the crap out of each other. So I enjoyed it. This was Corbin's best match in a while. I liked McAfee using the choir for his entrance. I don't know if that's going to be his new song going forward. I mean, minus the bum-ass Corbin or whatever they say. Although that was entertaining. You don't hear a church choir sing bum-ass very often. No, and McAfee won this match 10 minutes, 39 seconds. How would you describe that finisher? Because I have it written down, Canadian Destroyer, question mark, which I did (laughs) was. It was almost like a sunset flip where he like hooked his legs under the arms. It was... (laughs) innovative for him my first thought was that it was a slap at adam cole and that he was going to go for a panama sunrise but i don't know what the hell that was supposed to be at the end it basically just turned into a really bad sunset flip where he landed on his head see i will have to go back and watch it because i thought it was an amazing finish and randy has an interesting question is corbin he says unrated in wwe i think he means underrated no I I think he's been booked terribly under McMahon and 
He's an athletic guy. I don't think he has no charisma. Yeah. And let's see how he does under this new regime. Underrated. No, he has a ton of potential because we saw it in this match. He didn't look bad. He's a big guy. He's athletic. The gimmick that they have him in right now, he's got no charisma whatsoever. I liked him better when he had a darkest, brutish side when they first had him in NXT, where he just was the lone wolf that attacked people and was his own man. Corbin just because the hair looked silly as hell. I think that we need to mention Josh DeBoard here because there's new leadership in uh, WWE, but he apparently he's still the RSH champ. Oh, man, I was going to invite DeBoard for this recording, but I wasn't sure if he'd still be up. And Josh, one reason we were really excited to watch this tonight is specifically that new leadership and to see how it would play out 857 days i'd like to point out that's longer than your tribal chief rsh champ nobody can unseat him maybe one of these days we'll have to find our way onto his show and steal that title and predictions I had a chance this week, but I got screwed over by work. Same here. I was hoping to make it on a break, but it got busy just in the worst amount of time. Now, this match was followed by a SmackDown recap video highlighting that Drew is going on to clash at the castle. Yeah, thank God they had that spot where they interviewed him, too, because in the middle of the pay-per-view. That was a weird follow-up. Drew came out and did a live promo hyping the main event and making light of another rematch, which I thought was good. We've seen that, you know, rematch plenty of times. So it was funny to see Drew kind of pick at it and kind of laugh at it a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, I don't mind Drew McIntyre. I think he's got the short end of the stick. I don't think he's getting the push compared considering what he did during the pandemic. However, because of the way that they've booked him lately, I don't see any chance in hell of him taking the belt. Yeah, now Randy Osga asking the important questions. Do you think commentary is a little different now? They seem to be more open. I've been listening to it. They seem to say things differently. I'm sure, if anything, they're just a lot more relaxed. Work in that system and you do things a certain way, even if that guy's not yelling in your ear, I'm sure you have the same tendencies. But I think that commentary is coming around michael cole flat out said during the pay-per-view tonight he flat out said because Corey graves said to him said wow you're a little off kilter tonight and he said well i'm not being told what to say anymore i'm being able to actually speak from his heart yeah i thought i heard something that said like there's been a lot of changes here yeah. there was a few interesting lines and do y'all think drew is the one to take the belt at clash at the castle no but you do get a european name on that show yeah roman he's been quite the champion so it'll be interesting to see who ends up taking that from him i mean it could be theory theory in the long run might end up actually taking the belt at some point but i don't see it see that's interesting i was wondering if theory is almost out of consideration now that vince is gone but the match that followed this was one that i think everybody was excited for Special guest referee judging the Usos versus the Street Profits undisputed tag team championships. And God, what a match. These two teams delivered again. It's hard not to say that the Usos are the best tag team in the WWE. They're clearly not the best tag team in the world, Michael Cole, because that's FTR. However, the Usos are 
to in my opinion, by far the best tag team in the WWE currently. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you. Street Profits and Usos. Is this WWE's version of FTR and the Briscoes? Or oh, could absolutely. they put a better tag match together? I don't think you can put a better tag match together. The Street Profits are incredibly talented also. Both of them can move. They're both giants. They're both larger than they look. And now you've got freaking Montez Ford, who's put on the size. He He's a champion just waiting to happen. Do you think at the end of this, they are setting up to break them up? Because you had a little shock disbelief of the Street Profits in the ring. I would actually rather them not break him up. I would rather them just give him an edge, get rid of all that silly party crap, and have him just come out and whoop people's asses. Yeah, I love their gear tonight. The Tennessee Titans-inspired gear. Really just playing to the crowd. Like I thought it was an incredible match, and it was another one that gave me hope for the future of tag team wrestling in wwe randy osga asking the hard questions who's the team to take down the usos i don't think anybody takes down the usos right now i think they're gonna have those belts for a while just like roman is i mean i like some of the teams i like the fact that the viking raiders are back to being ass kickers and stop and aren't doing the silly shit anymore i do not like currently what they're doing with kofi and xavier woods i think that they need to make them a little bit more serious of a tag team again but other than that, can you think of a tag team that even comes close to lacing up their boots? Randy and Riddle once Randy Orton comes back, but that would be something that would have to be built up. You couldn't just bring Randy back and two weeks later. To me, I mean, it would either be the Street Profits or Orton and Riddle, but... One of my favorite teams seems to be done, the Dirty Dogs. I enjoyed the Dirty Dogs, but they never treated them seriously, and they've turned Chad Gable and Otis into a joke so unfortunately they've pretty much killed the rest of their tag team roster yeah hopefully going into raw now we can start building up some teams and reestablishing that tag division now the nxt roster actually has a much better tag team roster right now because they've been mixing in teams from europe so you're getting a lot more good tag team matchups yeah now i had a note here that the show was paced really well at this point because we were like god we're almost through the show three quarters of the way through the show and it didn't seem like it took that long now we had i'm gonna kind of summarize the next four points quickly we had a charlotte flair video package we had kid rock kissing a fat girl we had riddle storming the ring calling out rollins and whatever that was followed by a Liv morgan rousey hype video which led to Liv morgan and ronda rousey for the smackdown women's championship and before i give you my opinions on this match what did you think well i want to give some quick shots here real quick one nobody gives a shit about charlotte two nice to see how close kid rock is to his daughter three the hype video for Liv and Ronda Rousey was actually very well done. Liv versus Rousey, this match was very short with Liv Morgan getting the win in 4 minutes and 34 seconds, which I think like we said about her Money in the Bank cash-in, 
for her to credibly beat Ronda Rousey, it would have to be in a short match. So that part of it made sense. But they did what they had to do in this match, to be honest with you. I mean, literally, she won the match because the ref didn't see a tap out and Ronda Rousey's shoulders were on the mat. I mean, how else are you going to do this? In what way are you going to make this believable that Liv wins? And I don't think we would have seen a finish like this necessarily if Vince was around. So I didn't hate the finish, but it just felt super short. And it was almost like, why did we make this match for this event? But I mean, we got in, we got out unharmed. And that brings us to the, let me see if we have any videos before the main event. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Five weeks away from Clash at the Castle. Uh, cool. We had Kane in ring who announced 48,449 and got out of there just before the crowd could audibly boo him. All right. First of all, you put some respect on Mayor Kane's name. <laughs> yeah. The mayor of Knox County. They yeah. previewed NXT 2.0 this week that has looks like a four way match for the women's tag titles, which if you watched last Tuesday, and this was one of the few parts of NXT I caught, Medusa pulls the women's tag titles out of the garbage or they had a section with the garbage. Medusa comes in, sets up this match. Once again, I'm a little more excited for NXT now that Vince McMahon doesn't have his hands on it. It's going to take some time because they really did some damage to that show. But I mean, yeah. this is piping up another interesting facet of the show. Yeah, Vince McMahon basically turned NXT into what it was, the black and gold brand, back into a 1990s Saturday morning show. So he did some damage to it. Yes, followed by a Roman Brock hype video. And the main event, last man standing, Brock Lesnar versus Roman Reigns. This match went 22-58. And this was one of the best matches I've seen in a while from WWE. I went into it thinking it's going to be, they've done the last man standing. They've done it with these two. How could it get any better? And they upped it. They Just what they did with the tractor and the ring at the end was something I have never seen we have an expert here watching. Randy, how good was Brock Lesnar's tractor skills? I mean, you know what it's like to use that tractor on the farm. I think at one point you can question when he put the tractor in the ring because it's like he had it sitting there the whole time, then had to get into it to back it up. There was a couple times where he went back and forth to the tractor that felt like one time too many. Yeah. But other than that, amazing brawl. He drove the tractor to the ring. He introduced himself. Brock has been doing doing a lot more speaking in this comeback and he has been standing out Randy Osgood, given that professional opinion, he does have skills. To me, Brock's been so, has had such a great personality. You wonder if he's had this the whole time. Was this just something that they just were keeping away from us? Or is this something that literally he just developed? Because he's been fantastic. He's hilarious. I think he's developed it over the years because he learned under Cornette. He learned under Heyman. Probably for a while, he didn't feel comfortable talking. But then WWE played such a premium on Brock Lesnar as a commodity that he started, I'm going to call it an ego, but he started feeling himself a little more. Yeah. And then that's when he started talking on his own and that has set him apart. I enjoyed this main event way more than I expected. They beat 
the living hell out of each other. Yes, they did. And how about Heyman taking that F5 through a table? That is something I don't think we've ever seen him take. And that was an interesting little, you know, facet of it. Michael Cole going crazy during the match. He might need to calm down for his health. I Corey Graves was too. His health, I'm sure his blood pressure and his heart rate is like 50% less than it used to be without without Vince, Vince in his ear. Yeah. yeah. He can My still God. summon that emotion and not like worry himself. But then I enjoyed the commentary tonight for this main event. I enjoyed the commentary. The commentary added something to it to me because they both truly seemed like they were worried for the health of everybody involved in this match. Yeah. Now this thing was crazy. Roman Reigns getting the win in the end. At first I wrote theory cashes in question mark. He got F fives on the briefcase, but they clarified that. And that kind of sucks because now you've got your money in the bank briefcase gone like a month after the event. So there's no like anticipation for the rest of the year. No, no, he did not. No, he didn't cash it in. They clarified that. Oh, they said that he was not able to cash it in that before the ref could actually signal for the bell for him to join into it. Michael Cole and Corey Graves both were he did not get it in. He does not. In theory, they showed him at the end walking away with the briefcase. Okay, that's weird then. It's like, then why bring him out? Because he was going to cash it in and Brock <laughs> fived him like he has every time he's seen Brock. See, that's what's weird sometimes with those money in the bank cash-ins, like when it's like an official cash-in almost. Yeah, it's hard. It's always been so nip and tuck when they do that. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. But guys, AJ Strange Brew has been under the weather this weekend. We don't want to keep him any longer. So before I go into my quick StarCast rundowns, AJ, why don't you give us some final thoughts on the show? And then we will see you possibly Friday. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, I had an incident yesterday with my throat and I feel like I have razor blades in it. I want to give you some quick thoughts on the show. SummerSlam, absolutely amazing show. We love what happened. I like the direction the WWE is going in now. And for those of you who are going to tune into StarCast tomorrow. I will be watching that also. I just want to say real quick that I do believe that this will be Ric Flair's last match. The differences between his other last match with Sean and those guys was that at that time he was in health where you knew he might come back. Whereas this time, I'd like to make sure that this is his last match because I really don't want to see somebody die in the ring. But guys, everybody, thank you very much for your well wishes. Joe, thank you for having me on as always. All right, guys, that was AJ Strangebrew sitting in with producer Joe to talk SummerSlam and now we are going to get into StarCast 5 the latest installment of this popular podcast festival that used to pop up around WWE and this is the first time they or used to pop up around AEW this is the first time they're popping up around WWE and there is a great lineup of panel shows on this and we're gonna go kind of briefly through the first couple days offerings and talk to you about what we saw now first up was the roaster Ric Flair this was originally supposed to happen when Rick got sick and it got put off and i thought the roast of rick flair was hilarious the first comedian out of the gate had me some of the other comedians were great some of the celebrity appearances weren't as good but you have to give it up to rick's ex-wife for being there because you knew a lot of jokes were going to come her way the major wrestling figure podcast i tuned in about halfway because 
when I turned this on, when it was just starting, they were having some technical difficulties. So I couldn't watch the early show. I saw Dan Housen was sitting there too, so I could care less. I tuned in later in the show when they were talking wrestling figures. And one thing I want to mention, let me get it out from behind here. When they were going through Ric Flair figures, they showed this one and it's the WCW one. And I always wondered what age this came from. Did it come from WCW? Was it more AWA? And when they brought it up, Brian Myers talked about how when you played with these, the paint would definitely come off. And I don't know if you can see there, but he's got marks on him. My buddy got this toy used and it's definitely seen some wear and tear. But it was cool to see this pop up on there. And then Miro was their special guest to end out that show. So I thought that was a great panel. And it kicked off a lot of interesting ones. Now, the next one was Chris Van Vliet with Claudio Castagnoli. I'm not as familiar with Chris Van Vliet's podcast, but this was a good sit down. It was interesting. TJ Wilson even sent in a question and I would have more to say about this panel, but it kind of blended in because the panel that followed this up was oral sessions with Brian Danielson. And this was an amazing amazing panel you had they talked about talking smack they talked about the incident with the miz which i like that brian almost didn't want to give the behind the scenes of it talked about how much he hated filming reality tv this is my favorite panel so far of the day now the panel that i thought was going to be the best last ride with the four horsemen it was a good panel but to me it didn't quite live up to the expectations you had had problems with Ric Flair's mic early on. Barry Windham unfortunately didn't say a ton. Arn and Tully still great talkers. I think they did the heavy lifting on this panel. Rick can be an okay talker when he gets into it, but it doesn't always seem like he's necessarily behind what he's talking about. Like he has to seem extra invested to seem interested. So the panel was good, but like I said, it didn't meet my expectations. And then the final panel that I watched today was 30 years later with Brett the Hitman Hart. And honestly, we had just finished up the Four Horsemen panel. We were watching this. There was a couple of us talking, so I didn't pay as much attention to this panel as I would have liked. This is what I'm going to have to go back and watch. But overall, first real day of StarCast, second technical day. I thought this lived up to the hype. Now, I'm going to be running a review, hopefully, of Ric Flair's last match. We will include the second day of third technical day of StarCast. Let us know in the comments what matches you like the most from this weekend so far. What StarCast panels were your favorite? And let us know, you know, what match, what promotions you're watching. Thank you for tuning in. And I will talk to you again next time. As always, we are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault Volume 1 and Lance by Chance, written by Vinny Barry, over, available over at WrestleVille.com. Super Vows, Hot de written by Kevin Kelton, as well as I'll Be Here All Week, written by Ward Anderson. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, written by Brian R. Solomon, all available over at WrestleVille.com. We are brought to you by the great people over at Connecticut People Records, our wrestling commentary home of New Heights Wrestling. And today, I am here to talk to you about Ric Flair's last match. This was a card that happened last night. 
And originally, I wanted to bring you the review live after the show. But as I was watching the show, I wanted to take some time, sit and think about it before, you know, I put a review out. It had a pre-show. The first match, the only graphic I could find is Ren Narita versus not Clark Connors. He took on Yuya Uemura. And I thought this was a great match to open the show. I'm a fan of New Japan Wrestling. So getting to see two young lions that are starting to get out there and make their excursion a little bit, this was just a great opening match. It went five minutes, 57 seconds. Ren Narita got the win, as we thought he might have. I could have gone back and forth because Uemura, obviously another talented young lion, I thought maybe they'd give the win to him, but he did not pull it out in the end. Following this video... It's supposed to be Ric Flair coming out to talk to Shivani and Crockett. Lethal comes out instead, doing his Ric Flair impression. And then he turns on it and says, do you see how stupid that sounds? Really just playing a great heel. I didn't realize who the woman with him was coming out, Karen Jarrett. So him and Jeff Jarrett, I thought, both leading into this match, did a great job of playing or being the heel that this needed because obviously Ric Flair was going to be the babyface in all this. Following this was a Jarrett Lethal video, and Dave Prezak joins the team before we get to the Bunkhouse Battle Royal. Now, as the Battle Royal is about to kick off, Frank the Clown gets into the ring, trying to angle his way onto the show. Jacob Fox two comes out which causes frank to start running away as frank's leaving foley comes out shakes frank's hand which gives frank that false sense of comfort and then he takes frank throws him in the ring fatu super kicks him cannonballs him and then leaves following this interaction we had video messages from wrestlers and friends now some of these would be replayed through the night but you had dixie carter nick aldis jbl tris stratus kurt angle and Cody Rhodes. The Bunkhouse Battle Royal itself kicked off after this, and we had a bunch of people in the ring. I'm not going to get to the names right now because as it's about to start, Nick Gage's music starts. He comes out with a microphone, and the GCW invasion that had been teased at the GCW show kicks off here. Bunch of GCW guys get into the ring and the total number of participants. You had Mance Warner, one called Manders, Adam Priest, Big Demo, Blake Christian, Brian Myers, Bully Ray, Crimson, Crowbar, Effie, Gringo Loco, James Storm, Joey Janello, Cal Hero, Commander, Matthew Justice, Ricky Shane Page, Sin Bodie, and Wolfie D. This battle royal went 11 minutes and 24 seconds with Mance Warner getting the win. And when he got on stage and told Shivani and Crockett he's been waiting a long time to talk to them here, I thought it couldn't have been a better finish. This was followed by a video message from Sting, video message from Jim Ross, video message from Cody Rhodes. And this is still the pre-show, so you had an Impact Emergence pay-per-view that'll be next Friday, August 12th. You had a Mick Foley promo and a Nick Aldis video. That was Mick Foley live in the arena. And this pre-show did a good job of giving you a couple matches, building up the main show, and also 
just acting as a celebration to Flair. This whole show, the one thing you can't take away from it was that it was a great celebration for Flair's career. Now, the main show kicks off with a Bob Cottle intro, which I loved seeing, followed by a short Crockett Promotions video with a Bob Cottle voiceover. And then we get, or actually before the Crockett Promotions video, we got the Wolves versus the Motor City Machine Guns. Now, going into this event, this was one of the matches I was most excited for. Great match to start the show off with. It lived up to expectations. Now, going into it, I was sure the Wolves would win, but Motor City Machine Guns pulled out the win in 11.06, and it was everything you would have expected the match to be. High-flying, hard hitting this was a dream match i mean it probably happened one or two times somewhere but i was glad that it led things off this was followed by the crockett promotions video with the caudal voiceover and oh during the motor city machine guns match i had to make notes here because they had a different guest announcer for each match like Penzer joined for the Bunkhouse Battle Royal. Scott Demore joined Tony and David for the Motor City Machine Guns match. And Joe Dombrowski from MLW joined from the Killer Cross versus Davey Boy Smith Jr. match. Great Hoss match. Competitive. It was fairly short. I didn't expect it to go as short as it did, but it didn't shortchange. Killer Cross got the win in 5 minutes and 22 seconds. And two matches in... This is already a solid show. Now, continuing on with what they did in the pre-show video, you've got celebrity videos from Nick Nemeth, Booker T, Shawn Michaels, Jake Roberts, Will Sasso, Doug Dillinger, and Lex Luger. Now, up to this point, I was like, God, we're starting off the show hot. What could they bring for the third match? And they announced before the match even starts that the winner gets a shot at the Progress title. This is the four-way with Kanosuke Takeshita, Alan Angels, Nick Wayne, and Jonathan Gresham. Ian Riccoboni sits in on commentary. This was Lucha Rules, so if somebody leaves the match, somebody else can come in. And this was fast-paced. Another one. I was really looking forward to this going in, especially seeing what would happen with Gresham coming off of ROH. I thought for sure Nick Wayne was going to get the win because he's just had such luck lately. And with the names you got in here, Takeshita has had a hell of a run on excursion. Alan Angels coming off that AEW contract has made appearances in Impact. Now here, Nick Wayne, great GCW run. But in the end, Jonathan Gresham got the win. And I was happy to see that. Let's show the graphic actually for this. I... Spend time getting these graphics, and then I'm so excited to talk about the match. I don't even describe them. Now, following this, we had a celebrity well wishes video from Cody Rhodes. Nick Aldis joins commentary for this me next match that features representing the Rock and Roll Express, carrying Ricky Morton versus Brock Anderson and Brian Pillman representing the Four Horsemen. I thought it was interesting that they're using the older team's names for these younger teams, and I hope they bring this Four Horsemen gimmick to AEW. Maybe slowly work it in. Obviously, you gotta find another two for the group. This was a great tag match. Kerry Morton looked better than I remembered. I think I was 
as we were talking amongst each other at the last G watching the last GCW show, I was a little critical about Kerry Morton in ring, but he looked great here. Brock and Pillman really clicking as a team. I saw them take on FTR at big time wrestling in Webster mass and they looked good, but I thought they were looking so much more like a team here. I'm sure the gear doesn't hurt. And Pillman Jr. and Brock Anderson get the win in 721. Now, one thing I've noticed about a lot of these matches is they were shorter matches. They felt some of them felt really short. Some of them were just great matches in this little amount of time. And you didn't feel shortchanged. Now for the next match, Joe Dombrowski once again joined Tony and David, where we had Bandito versus Taurus versus Laredo Kid versus Phoenix. And these are four of the best luchadors you could get to feature in a lucha match like this. Just about halfway through the show, and this match went the longest at 11 minutes, 45 seconds, with Phoenix getting the win. This was a wild match. If you're going to check out one match from the show, I definitely recommend checking this out. And this is the first time in my notes I made the note match of the night because I really think this was like one of the first contenders. This match was followed by a Jim Ross video for Ric Flair and then a Fatu Alexander hype video. And Tom Hannafin from Impact Wrestling joins Tony and David for Jacob Fatu versus Jake. Josh Alexander for the Impact World Championship. And this was probably one of the first matches announced when this card like really started taking shape. And I thought it was a very interesting matchup. I was super excited for it. And, you know, Josh Alexander has had a great Impact Championship run where Jacob Fatu was one of the most dominant MLW champions in a while. So this match is going on. Myers and Cardona come in the ring and attack Fatu. So the match is declared a no contest. And while they're in the ring, DDP makes his way from the crowd to the ring, delivers a diamond cutter on Cardona and runs them off. And I was a little disappointed to see this match end this way at 10 minutes and 14 seconds, but just to see them in the ring was great. And hopefully Fatu can eventually make his way to impact. This was followed by Josh Chernoff going to Jeff Jarrett's locker room to interview him. And first off, we see Jerry Jarrett answer the door. Once again, another one of these great comments, cameos, and I noticed earlier on Twitter that Brian R. Solomon commented, this is like the mad, mad, mad world of pay-per-views. And that gets even more true because as they go into Jeff Jarrett's locker room, Jerry Lawler is hanging out there. He does most of the talking and then sends Chernoff off. This was probably the cameo. I think I might have popped the most for this because it was a great talking segment for him and really just did more to set up that main event. Ian Riccoboni is back in the commentary booth with Tony and David because it is time for the Von Ericks versus the Briscoes. This had to be after Alexander and Fatu when this match got announced. This was the match that I was like, okay, I am ready for that. I don't know if it's a match we're going to get to see anywhere else. Hopefully, Court Bauer maybe brings the Briscoes to MLW. Great match. It was slightly underwhelming. I don't know if it's the time constraints because the Briscoes won in 7 minutes, 43 seconds. And I feel like that is a common comment for some of the matches on here. They 
might have felt like they went better had they been given more time. But I wasn't disappointed in the show, if anything. It's just like the one comment I could make based on what I noticed. But the Briscoes end up getting the win. This was followed by a Sting video for Ric Flair. And now we are getting to the semi-main and the main events. In the semi-main event, Tom Hannafin is back because you have Deanna Perrazzo versus Rachel Ellering versus Jordan Grace for the Impact Knockouts title. And this is actually the third match that I thought could be match of the night because we had, obviously, I said it for the four-way with Gresham, Takeshita, Wayne, and Angels. I also thought it for that Lucha match, Bandito, Taurus, Laredo Kid, and Phoenix. And for the third match that I thought could be match of the night, I thought it had to be this one, Ellering, Perrazzo, Grace. This match went 9 minutes, 17 seconds. Jordan Grace pulled out the win, and it was a competitive match that lived up to expectations. It felt like the time was filled perfectly. This, if you didn't want to get super sad, this could be your main event. Now, there was a video hyping up Flair's last match, and let's get to the main event. Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett versus Ric Flair and Andrade, and I don't want to be harsh about this, but I also can't just treat it like it was a regular match. We knew it was going to be a gimmick, a stunt. And I mean, the match was what it was. Flair and Andrade got the win like we expected. Flair bled like we expected. He just looked, he didn't look great coming into this match. Now, to be his age, to get into the ring and be able to do anything is amazing. But if you look at somebody like Action Mike Jackson, he still gets in the ring. He might be just about as old, but he doesn't necessarily look like it. Flair looked creaky coming down to the ring. The big gold he had on caused him to walk out a little weird as he was coming out. I couldn't tell if he was walking that way just because of the age, but it could have been the belt because he was fiddling with it a little bit, and then he hands it off, finishes the rest of the way. This, it, it was a good send-off for Ric Flair. They honored him the whole night. There was videos to him. They got, he got to do it on his terms. He did it under the Crockett Promotions banner. They made a huge thing of it. But in my opinion, this match just didn't live up to it as much. It, they did what they could. It was the capper to the weekend. It was the reason everything was going on. So you can't be too hard on it. Now, if I were just reading that match, I would say this thing was a dud. Overall, the show was... I really enjoyed it from the variety of matches you had. You had New Japan Young Lions. You had Motor City Machine Guns and the Wolves. You had Takeshita, Wayne, Angels, and Gresham in a fatal four-way. You had four of the best luchadors in the world going for it. You had Kerry Morton and Ricky Morton going up against Brock Anderson and Brian Pillman. Just the amount of wrestling lineage in that match was great. You had Fatu versus Alexander, a three-way with top of the three of the top knockouts in Impact's knockouts division. And you had Flair's last match. Now, in addition to Ric Flair's last match this weekend, we had StarCast 5. I reviewed day two, day one and two of it because I lumped the roast of Flair in. And I had to work this day. So I was able to catch the 
early airing of Foley's pod. And there was no doubt that this was going to be great. Foley's a great talker, aside from some technical difficulties that they had in the beginning, but they had it with a lot of panels on this show. So I wouldn't judge it just based on that one. There was a lot of early Memphis talk, you know, when Foley got his start, some of the Austin Jarrett, he... Conrad hosted this one, which was great. And he couldn't go without mentioning the Chamber of Horrors. There was a lot of Tennessee-related memories. And I had this written down that it wasn't necessarily what I expected, but I enjoyed it a ton. I don't know what I was expecting out of a live podcast from Foley. It's the same thing. I didn't know what to expect from Soraya. Obviously, it'd probably talk about her time in WWE, but... Per, more a more perfect example is like click this with kevin nash i haven't watched it yet so i don't know what to expect him to talk about i know the general feel of the podcast so i assume it's going to be a live show like that i didn't know what to expect with the major wrestling figures podcast and they kind of did like a rick flair toy thing and so i enjoyed foley's pod and then soraya turning the page this was one i didn't think i would have any interest for going in she addressed not going to AEW soon like almost right off the bat and then the rest of this was just hugely interesting she talked about coming back right after an injury she talked about absolution i was most interested for the english wrestling scene and starting off that was one of the more interesting tidbits that she talked about. Now, I don't know if I found this more interesting because it was hosted by Brian Zane from Wrestling With Regret, and that's a YouTube channel that I enjoy watching a lot. I think he does a good job hosting, and it was cool to hear him say that he was going to get this. Now, it was really interesting hearing about the women's re wrestling revolution in WWE from Soraya's point of view because it was a lot of her entry, Charlotte's entry, Becky's entry, Bailey's entry into WWE that kind of spearheaded that movement. And that was a, this panel blew me away far more interesting than I would have expected. And only because I wasn't hugely tuned into Paige or, you know, wasn't a huge fan. So I didn't expect to get knocked away by this. Now, that was what I watched yesterday. Let us know in the comments on our YouTube video, on our Twitter, on our Facebook group, Working Fans Podcast, Nation of Domination. Let us know what you enjoyed most from this weekend. And guys, as always, we will see you again later. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the number is 82designs, 482designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F-O-U-R, 82designs, at F-O-U-R, 82designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, go to F-O-U-R, 82designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality T-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's a light years better than our first one. Also, it survived the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. 
Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. Welcome back for episode 158 of Working Fans Podcast. As always, we are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault Volume 1 and Lance by Chance, written by Vinny Berry, available at WrestleVille.com. Super Vows and Pot they do written by kevin kelton available on amazon along with i'll be here all week by ward anderson we are brought to you by the great people over at connecticut people records our wrestling commentary home of new heights wrestling and today's guest is one of the 605 super podcasts funniest guest voicing Don Morocco and hiccuping Fabulous Moolah among others. You have also seen his photos in wrestling magazines across the landscape, Dark Side of the Ring and in the book Blood and Fire the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. He is the proprietor of Hardway Art. He is the third guest we've had on from the 605 but number one in our hearts magnificent Howard Baum. Howard, how are you doing today? Hey guys, it's an honor. Thanks for that lush-inducing intro. I appreciate it. Hey, I always try. And like I told you off air, I thanked Vandal the same way. I was at a job that I was not a fan of, and I saved the 605 Super Podcast to get me through shifts. And your comedy, Vandal's comedy and history knowledge, same with Scott Cornish, Brian Last, everybody over at Arcadian Vanguard, I love what you do. And Ask Dave, I'm always talking his ear off about you got to check this podcast. I know you don't have time for podcasts, but carve out four and a half hours for the newest 605 and you will laugh your ass off. Well, for sure. You know, Brian Last was a visionary and he plucked us from the ashes of guys that would have been just a byline in an old mimeographed dirt sheet, you know, from the olden days. All of us guys, me, Vandal, just a whole pack of us, Norman the Weasel, Dooley, Jim Cornette, we all go back to the old bulletins and... And there was no thrill. You kids today won't know the thrill of being 10 years old and getting some mail delivered and you get an issue of Jeff Singer's Dropkick or something. You could still smell the mimeograph on it. And it was just a treat because you could see what was going on in other areas and everything. And if not for the great Brian Last, he truly plucked us from obscurity because all of us guys like Vandal and myself, we were there back in the olden days. We rubbed elbows. We saw the greats in action before we ever knew that there was going to be a podcast podcast about it or anything like that and it's lucky because wrestling has gone the way of the freak show and roller derby now real true professional wrestling which i define wrestling as kayfabe if it's not kayfabe it's not wrestling and all these kids that want to put on tutus and have little backstage skits and try to out improv each other and be cutesy and not be a real heel and still try to get popular and congratulate your opponents before during and after the match King Curtis and Ox Baker and Killer Carl Cox would come in the dressing room and wipe their asses with this current crop of what's going on. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. <laughs> Dave, since you're not as familiar with Howard, why don't you hit him with a question? Absolutely. Yeah. Like Vandal, too, it's funny. I was telling him, you know, a lot of times we get these guests on and we ask about their fandom and stuff just to kind of get an idea. And it's typical. It's like, you know, 90s or early 2000s, the Cena's, the Rocks. I want to know what your fandom was because you're mentioning names like King Curtis. Like, what territory did you grow up on? Okay, well, in 1974, we moved down to South Florida from Union, New Jersey. And this was a downgrade in most ways except for the wrestling. So in 1974, I think it was early 1975, I walk in, my dad is watching Canal 23. 
which for people who are not from Miami, that's Channel 23. That's the, that was, they broadcasted the wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in LA. And I was in the other room. We're staying in my aunt's apartment until our house was ready. 1975, I'm like eight years old. And I walk in and I see this production like I've never seen before, this big blue ring. And I say to my dad, what's this? He goes, it's wrestling. So I watch it for a minute. And it's lucky I was watching this one particular episode because it was... Sir Oliver Humperdinck and the Hollywood Blondes were having a big feud, apparently, with Louis Tillette. And I think Choi Sun was involved, maybe Greg Valentine. But history, now, if we look back, it could have easily been any number of boring shows that was on. It could have been a 90-minute Broadway with Irish Mickey Doyle against Alberto Madrill or something. But it just happened to be one of the most sensational, bloody angles of all time. And then the magazine covered it a month later, and they called it The Night Oliver Humperdinck Almost Lost an Eye. And it had to be the bloodiest angle they ever showed on L.A. wrestling. And when I saw that with my eight-year-old eyes, because I was always a fan of monster magazines and Fangoria and all that stuff growing up, hammered Dracula stuff, like monster movies and all that. And when I saw that big bloody angle with Sir Oliver Humperdinck, the night he almost lost an eye, I said, that's it. I found my thing. And I did. A few months later, I was over at a friend's house in third grade and we're watching Florida wrestling. Had no idea there was a such thing as Florida wrestling. And it was so much better of, of a production and an exciting show that drew you in than the typical LA show. And then they said, there's matches every week at the Miami Beach Convention Center. So I said, well, this is mind-blowing information. We've got to go. So my parents weren't about to let me go with this guy's neighbor, some Camaro-driving, weed-smoking <laughs> 70s guy. They treated me like a calf being raised for veal. So my dad started taking me to the matches. 19, August of 1975 was my first match. Jack Briscoe versus Rocky Johnson was the main event. And meanwhile, during the interim, I had been getting into the magazines my dad was a wrestling fan, so he was educating me on when he used to go see Gene Stanley, Dick the Bruiser, Buddy Rogers, The Sheik, etc. at the Laurel Gardens in New Jersey and stuff. And I became intoxicated and, and it was a compulsion to become a wrestling photographer because I would get those old issues where it was just the photos like the photo issues of the magazines. And I saw the great photography of people like Theo Errett and everything. And just by looking at it, I was drawn in to be part of this world. And it was like a course in how to take wrestling photos, how you take a posed photo, how you, you know, what your position should be, the composition. And it just wasn't even anything I had to study. It was just like, that's how you take a wrestling photo. So my goal, my young bucket list that formed was to become ringside photographer for the magazines at the Miami Beach Convention Center. Fast forward to 1982, at the age of 16, I did just that. They opened up the guardrail to me and I was able to place my elbow on the mat and the rest is history. And from there, I went on to shoot for any magazine that you could think of, including Japan and beyond. When did so that, your interest in photography start? Because it sounds like you were a wrestling fan almost as early as you can remember. Like right. for Dave, I mean, I can't speak for Dave, but I know for me, my wrestling fandom started. It was watching wrestling superstars and seeing Hulk Hogan get ready in the tunnel before going out to MSG. I think it's probably about, I've pinned it at about 86, yeah. and that's when I can remember my earliest well, wrestling. Yeah. Dave was a little bit older. 
Yeah, for Howard. It's funny. So my earliest, when I started like religiously watching, was the Piper Snooker angle where Piper cracked the coconut over his head. But before that, I have some early memories, early 83, 82, and the guys that just stuck out with me. One of them was Rocky Johnson, so it was interesting to hear you say his name. Others were Bob Backlund, Jimmy Snooker diving off the top rope. That was just, at that point, for me, that was, that was incredible. For sure. Of course, I'm- You know, WWF was good in those days. Mm-hmm. Or at least parts of it were. And right. also, today is a momentous day. The World Wrestling Federation has made it okay to once again say the words wrestling yeah. and wrestlers. <laughs> which is why, fuck Vince McMahon. And I've been <laughs> saying that for 36 years. Because I was there as an 18-year-old kid when TNT debuted. And they bring in all these guys that built up a career of respect to participate in ridiculous skits and parade them out there and give them new names and crap all over the business that gave him an opportunity to make money. I have been anti-Vince forever. I thought it was the greatest day of all time when he was forced to step down. It's kind of like it's kind of like throwing a 90-year-old Holocaust guard in jail now because, yeah, he already did all his damage. And Vince's legacy is forever going to be every stupid backstage skit Every ridiculous thing that got away from the roots of professional wrestling, which is just good guy, bad guy, protect kayfabe. That's the most dangerous thing that he did. He got rid of kayfabe. And that's why nothing is believable. Because even though wrestling was silly and ridiculous and anybody with a brain knew that it was not on the up and up. There was always that little seed of doubt, like maybe this match is real. Maybe this guy is dangerous. We just don't know about this situation. Oh my God, we saw a title change. Didn't see that coming. But, you know, the internet combined with Vince McMahon killing kayfabe made nothing believable. And today's workers, if you can call them that, just add to the situation because they're complimenting their opponents before, during, and after the match and coming up with these the ridiculous little promos that they do to each other just to stay cute and whatever. And I mean, if I was going to be an active wrestler today, you would know nothing about me other than my character, period. Like MJF is the only modern guy that does it correctly. He doesn't let you in on what he's really like. He doesn't let you behind the curtain like almost everyone else in the business does. Like, oh, I thought we had great heel chemistry. with Shut up. No old school guy would be caught dead going on Twitter complimenting his opponent. And I used to listen to the old guys and now I'm the old guy. And I'd, I'm, I'd be like, oh, how boring. They want to like have a headlock and an arm lock, but it's not. And it, it took me a long time. I would hear these old pros say things like you know the basics and all this stuff and now that i've seen the whole business come full circle go from what it was to feasting upon its own corpse by killing itself and then the whole industry of wrestling became the behind the scenes became more interesting than what was going on in the ring people used to say who won can you imagine that they'd go like who won or what happened on wrestling and then that became oh what What if this nobody is going to jump from this company to this company? Like, that's what the whole business became. The behind the scenes intrigue. And I'm a realist. Being the internet, cable, wrestling would not have survived. It would have gone the way of the freak show and the rodeo. I don't know if the rodeo is still around or whatever. But you get my point. It was a thing of its time. It was a thing that due to cable and the internet, It was doomed to fail. You can't have all that information out there and an informed public and still have professional wrestling as it was. My hatred for Vince is that he had to 
distance himself and do away with things that would not have hurt wrestling, that would have only maintained the image and whatever prestige the business had, which was protect the wrestlers, protect the business. And then the stuff that he added into the lexicon of wrestling was copied by every group, major and minor, every independent worker, every independent promoter since the 80s has copied everything Vince has done. We used to have a setup in wrestling, which is bad guys dressing room is there. Good guys dressing room is there. They come out with no music, a towel around their neck, get their own heat, get their own crowd support, meet in the middle of the ring. Now, Vince introduced the center ramp. So every rinky-dink independent group has to come up with their own center ramp. Why? They can't do what Vince is doing better than Vince. They should have maintained the old wrestling and it would have made Vince's product look stupid, fake, and phony. And they could have maintained the integrity of the business that would have still been intact today in some way. But instead, every other group had to copy everything that Vince did, and the whole business became a mockery. Because now, as the young generation comes up, they think all this tomfoolery is what wrestling was. But if Eddie Graham or Bill Watts caught any of these kids discussing what their idea of wrestling is and what they want to do and their vision for their character and these promoters who lack vision bill watts and eddie graham i couldn't imagine how they how, how they would be looking at each other and i will end this tirade by saying this i saw ricky morton at a live event recently and he said right the old way and new way is a right way and a wrong way and i agree with that you know it's so simple but it's the truth. Protect your gimmick. 100%. Now, what do you think the wrestling landscape is going to look like post Vince? It's an interesting time because we haven't had a time like this in the last 40 some odd years. Isn't it beautiful? Okay. It's- I know I know Triple H is a student a student of the business. He idolized Ric Flair, he idolized Harley Race. I think Triple H as a wrestling person, his heart is definitely in the right place. Now, I'll tie this in. It's going somewhere, believe me. Jerry Briscoe commented on the flair buildup and said, oh, this is the way that business should be done. This is some great stuff, you know, building interest for the match. A lot of people could learn from this. And I wanted to respond to him and say, yeah, it would have meant something if you didn't hand Vince the keys 36 years ago and have him destroy kayfabe because now nothing means anything. So everyone talks about, oh, wrestling's going to get good again under Triple H. But we've spent the last 36 years chipping away at wrestling's foundation. And I know Triple H appreciates wrestling's foundation, but what can you do to revive something that has been perverted into something that it never was? So my interest as a fan has completely been lost, but a lot of people are into it. And I say more power to them, I guess. So you don't keep up with much current wrestling, then? I do when I have to, or if preferably there's an old guy involved, like Vince retiring and Flair coming out of retirement, whatever that was. <laughs> yeah, but I don't. I, I've seen enough good wrestling by the end of the 80s to last me an entire lifetime. And it has. To my way of thinking, it's only gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. A lot of people's old days are my, it already sucked by then. You know, like, with all due respect, by 1986, I was disgusted with what they were doing because you had Terry Funk, NWA champion, certified badass, 
come out there on a TNT set, Tuesday Night Titans, not TNT Impact, yeah. whatever, their little comedy show that they did in the, in the 80s, and Terry Funk comes out there, and you're supposed to believe that it's a bar where Terry Funk knows the barmaid name, and he's ordering a drink, but it's clearly on a soundstage in Stanford, Connecticut. Like, what? So there's no coming back from that. You know, like within one year, Terry Funk goes from kick-ass to participating in a ridiculous skit on the Carol Burnett show. Don Morocco, one of the greatest underappreciated heels of all time. And what does everybody remember about him now? Not the great feuds with Snuka, Morales, Rocky Johnson, all his Florida stuff that he did, which was amazing. And they remember Fuji Vice, the ridiculous skit that was designed to make him look like a fool. And that is, is WWF wrestling. So that's where are we going? Where, where I we first going? became acquainted with him. So where are we going forward? Who knows? Because you already burned your bridge. You already burned your You didn't keep the business alive. If anybody else had the stewardship of professional wrestling for the last 36 years, let's say Crockett won the promotional war. I don't think they were the greatest businessman in the world, but I don't think they ever would have come up with, let's ban the terms wrestling, wrestler, fans, belt. What are you kidding me? <laughs> that's why everyone hates Vince, because that's just anti-wrestling right there. Let's just come up with a different word for everything that was ever a part of this business. Yeah. So that. That's my that's my spiel on that. No, I, it's funny. Listen, because you had mentioned MJF too, and I know you don't keep all the current stuff, but even before he was in AEW, I was watching him on uh, MLW one day, and they're working a program with the Von Ericks, and he's just cutting them down. And you can see they're in Texas, and fans are getting legit pissed, and he's talking about. And I, it, it occurred to me, I became a fan who's just I've accepted <laughs> you know this, and what I he was reminding me, oh wow, that's right. You know, right. real pissed off back in the day. And when COVID happened, you know, that empty arena match, that's when it really became, because it wasn't an empty arena match like Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. It was like, oh, this is ridiculous. Right, an right, right. Yeah. You know, I heard Cornette on one of the shows recently say something to the effect of, I had to run for my life versus cowboys, Cajuns. People were literally trying to tear us apart. And... For somebody like that who really lived in the business and, you know, literally put his life in danger night after night to see these people just parade around like I was I, I'm a peripheral character. I'm not saying that I'm in the business or ever was in the business. I was a we had a little promotion back in the old days. I've been around for 40 years. I think that I know more about wrestling than a lot of people who are currently in it. But I still will never say that I am or was in the wrestling business. I still am a peripheral character because I will not give myself that credit compared to people who really lived it and depended on it for a living. So for these people to do what they're doing now, imagine if like you were going to be ripped to shreds by a crowd and then 20 years later, people are just like crapping on what you were taught to defend with your life. Literally. How did you make the jump from being just a regular fan to a fan that became, you don't want to say involved in the business, but how did you commingle with the business? How did you become acquainted with it? Was it through the photography? Well, the photography was a ruse to get in because I just knew that I wanted to be a part of wrestling. And I figured the only way you can get backstage, especially as a wimpy 13-year-old kid, is you either have to be a photographer or a writer. 
And luckily, in wrestling, the bar was so low, I ended up in every magazine by the time I was 14. <laughs> and it was just a matter of time before I got into better and better magazines and, and stuff like that. I mean, I always kick myself for not going into rock and roll photography or something like that, which I could have done concurrently with wrestling if I was cooler back then or had the idea. But I don't know. I just always had this obsession. I was a self-taught photographer just because I wanted to be around the business. And it's like, once you're taking pictures of the guys, you can give them photos of themselves. And now you just met Jake the Snake and Kevin Sullivan. And next week they pose for you and J.J. Dillon and whoever it was. And then they all know you, Barry Windham. That was a way to get to know all the guys. And then by the time I got to be shooting ringside, you know, you just become a part of the fabric. And then once you do it in one territory, you just say, oh, I shot down there. Let me shoot up here. So like when we went to Pete Letterberg and I had this fan group, we were a part of, we ran the WFIA, which if you guys want to look it up on YouTube, there's a thing called the WFIA Tag Team of the Year in which Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert turned on each other. And we, we were out there as a couple of dweebs. We gave them the Tag Team of the Year award, but they already hated each other. So they had this big giant brawl. I urge you all to look it up. I know you guys probably have seen it, but for the audience, the WFIA Tag Team of the Year, I'm sure anyone watching this already knows about it. But, you know, the more you do, you're just in. And that's how wrestling was back then. Like, hey, I, I did this. It, it was one small world back then. It wasn't corporate. And if you shot for a magazine, you would just tell the promoter, like when World Class came down to Florida, I called their office. I said, hey, I shoot for all these magazines. Can I just... Can I get a photo pass? And the guy's like, yeah, just ask, for, just ask for me when I when you get there. I'm like, okay, who's this? He goes, Bronco Lubitsch. I'm like, oh, my God, how cool. And wow. that's how it was back then. Like, I, I had to deal with Duke Kiyomoka, Duke Tanaka, to get my press pass, if you want to call it that, to shoot in Miami. He originally didn't want to let me, and I was already in all these magazines. I was in the Norm Kaiser magazines, Wrestling News, which – Pretty much was the start for every photographer. Cornette, Eddie Gilbert, Paul Heyman, all started as photographers and writers like I did in the wrestling news under George, uh, George uh, what's his name? Norm Kaiser, Norm Kaiser, Jim Melby. And from there, you go on. And my goal was to be in the after magazines. I thought that was the greatest byline that you could have. Mind you, they only paid $7 a photo. So... It wasn't really anything lucrative, but as a kid, I was obsessed with seeing my name in the after magazines. And we had a photographer in Miami, Paul Bauman. He was an older gentleman, probably the same age that I am now. And I'm like, well, it's only a matter of time before he drops off and I'm going to be the new photographer in, for after in Miami. But what happened was the, the promotion died before he died. So I never got the chance and I'd left for college in 84 anyway. So I never got to do that. My photos did appear in Afters magazines, but, you know, technically, I mean, I wasn't one of his regular guys because he had so many photographers in Florida that he didn't really need me. So that part of the dream never came true. But it all comes full circle because now I have my photos. Instead of shooting them in black and white and submitting them to the magazines, I have all my original color 8x10s, which comes in handy for my website that's about to launch, hardwayart.com which I'm hoping to get up in time for the Christmas holiday buying season for the wrestling fan in your life. And I urge you to, I don't mean to turn this into a plug, but while I'm on a roll, Hardway Art on Facebook right now, or you can friend me, Howard Baum, 
on Facebook to keep up with all the haps, but I didn't have to shoot in black and white. I didn't have to submit my negatives and even shooting for Japan, which was the big money territory at the time. If you're going to be a photographer, you want to shoot for Japan. If you want to see somebody that's making money back then, or even now, those guys that are shooting for Japan, they are making money hand over fist, $350 per roll, 1982 money. And that was not even the major Japanese magazine. That wasn't even gong. I was shooting for weekly fight and they paid $350 per roll. And there were photographers back then that had like three cameras around their neck shooting for all the major magazines at the time. So, I mean, just showing up, that's like a $5,000 night in 1982 money. So that was, that was, that was the goal. I, they did use me, but not again, not as a regular ongoing thing. It was just for special occasions or whatever, but you know, now I have all my negatives, all my originals, and I'm turning them into artwork. I have these book projects and my prints are going to become available sometime this year, et cetera, et cetera. It all works. Now, anybody that's not familiar with Hardway Art, definitely check them out. And Howard, I've looked at a lot of your pictures and what goes into getting a good shot? Like, how do you approach that? Because I'm not a photographer and in my head, it's just random chance. You just take right. a bunch of photos. You hope you get gold. Is there any way to get the shot that you're hoping for? I think that much like comedy, photography, true photography can't be taught. You have to have a feel for it. And I'm not saying I'm funny. I'm saying I'm a good photographer. And it's just because, I mean, some people, you know, it's the most frustrating thing in the world when you're someplace, especially when there's a, like like famous wrestlers involved or something and everybody wants to get a picture. So everybody with me gets an amazing picture and I get like an upside down blurry thing with my head cut off <laughs> because the photographer never gets a good photo of himself because it's it mu apparently must be some amazing talent to take pictures because to me, it's always come naturally. It's just composition. My advice would be to you or anyone that's interested, pick up any wrestling magazine and look at the photos. That's it. That's how you compose a wrestling photo. One of the words of advice that Paul Bauman gave me was that what he tries to capture a facial expression, which is fine for a rest hold or something, but that's hard to do. And I mean, if you have a fast enough camera, which today they're a dime a dozen. You, you can, it's easier to capture the action. It's, it's just really all in the composition because you could tell it's like a guitar player. You could tell the player by his work. I can look at wrestling photos and I know who took them. The great Theo Eret, the great Don DeLeon, all the guys I grew up on. Raul Gomez de Molina Jr., who went on to become a TV star known as El Gordo in El Gordo and La Flaca, which is funny because he was this big rotund photographer. He looked like Crusher Blackwell. And he was really good friends with Terry Funk back in the day. And he would go out to Terry Funk's ranch because Raul was one of these guys that was shooting for the Japanese magazines. So years later, he used to be a paparazzi photographer and stuff too. And so I knew he knew Terry Funk. So to get in good with Terry Funk, when I first met him, I said, hey, you remember Raul? He's like, yeah, whatever happened to him? I'm like, he's actually a TV star now on the Latin stations, El Gordo and La Flaca. He's like, El Gordo, that's hilarious. And he like, Terry Funk got a big kick out of that. And it was a good icebreaker for me and Terry Funk and all that. But my message to the kids, if you want to be a wrestling photographer, just look at any magazine, 
And, you know, that'll give you an idea. Plus, you have to be able to, there's a word for it, but I can't think of it right now. You just have to know the moves and what's coming up. Like, at what point are you going to take, you know, are you going to take the suplex before, during, or after? That kind of thing. You have to be able to, still can't think of the word. I tried for it a second time. I still (laughs) anticipate. If you watch enough wrestling, you know the layout of a wrestling match. So, essentially, you'd know kind of around what shots you want to get do you want to get the lead up to the finish do you want to get them like making the comeback things like that like in boxing i mean if if it it, in the olden days you had to rely on your flash and everything the cameras are so good now if i took a picture i would have to wait 30 seconds before i would take another picture so it's like if a guy's whipping a guy into the ropes i'm like do i take it when he starts to whip him into the ropes or do i take it when the guy comes back and he gives him a um a leapfrog or whatever it is. You know, you have to decide when you're going to use your one shot. This film was more expensive back then. I didn't have a fancy flash pack where if my flash went off, I'd have to wait. So I had to make every shot count. I mean, now the technology is such that you can shoot and shoot. You're not spending money on film and the technology is there. Workers aren't, but the technology is. So the internet- there's a lot more to shoot in ring. I mean, when I was shooting, there was a lot more gravitas. You know, like I'd be shooting a Terry Funk, a Harley Race, a Dusty Rhodes. There was more gravitas to that, but there's so much more action for you to shoot now. So it's, you know, old versus new, whatever. It's all good. I don't want I don't, I don't want to sound like an old grizzled whatever, <laughs> but you can always have a modern guy on to discuss modern shit. I'm just talking about what put me on the map, you know? And that's what interests us. Now, you've had some run-ins with some of the greats. You've talked about meeting Terry Funk. You had a great episode about when you ran into Pat Patterson not too long before he passed away. What are some of the moments in the business that you can't believe you got to experience? Oh, it's many and numerous. But yeah, I'll tell you Terry Funk specifically. I started going to these things at the CAC, the Cauliflower Alley Club in in Vegas. I I don't remember where I first met Terry Funk, but I I was lucky enough to meet him numerous times and his wife. It's just the coolest thing in the world to have a conversation and talk to somebody that you grew up watching as a legend. I mean, I can't tell you a greatest Terry Funk thing. Aside from talking to him in real life, Terry Funk in particular is the coolest the most down to earth of any of the big names. But I will tell you a fun one, which was all the photographers knew and passed the word down that Terry Funk and Abdullah are the only two guys you need to be scared of. Mm. And this is, you know, before everyone, this is before everyone figured out that Terry Funk was a nice guy. Never met him before, nothing. But it was 1989 and he was working Sting for the NWA in Miami. And everyone said, if Terry Funk, goes outside the ring, run. And what they told me my first day of being a wrestling photographer in 1982, the great Bruce Owens, timekeeper and referee, still going as a matter of fact, and he was kind of like my mentor. He goes, if the guys come outside the ring, just lean into the ring, make yourself small and they'll go around you. No problem. So if you watch any photographer now on any old tape, that's what they do. That you, you just lean into the ring and they know to go around you. They're not there to beat up a photographer, except for Terry Funk and Abdullah the Butcher, because they were unpredictable and Abdullah would hurt you. And I never knew what Terry Funk would do because nobody ever let them him catch them. But me, I am a nut. I'd rather have a bad encounter. I'd rather have something horrible happen so I have something to talk about than just play it safe. So 
he, he was working Sting. And I go, you know what? I'm going to see what happens. <laughs> I just stood there. And Terry Funk came outside the ring and throttled me. He had both hands around my neck and he was throttling me. I didn't feel a thing. He was totally working. I went down to one knee just to help him out and sell. And it was one of the greatest things that ever happened. I'm like, look at that. I let him catch me and he worked with me. He gave me a working version of beating me up. And I'm like, well, I appreciated that. But I will tell you another thing about Terry Funk. That's not to let him off the hook completely because Terry Funk goes, when he goes into character, it was 1989. He was working Dusty at the PWF, their ill-fated revival of Florida wrestling. And they had a really poor house, great card, but a poor house, 1989 at the Knight Center. And I don't know, it was just, that promotion could not get a foothold, even though they had the old Florida names. So we're all hanging out backstage. Luna, who I was good, close personal friends with, Terry Funk, we were all shooting photos backstage. And I'm shooting photos of Luna, Terry Funk, they're all mugging it up, smiling, we're all friends. Terry Funk, a half hour later, comes out for his match. It was a bunkhouse match. So he was in his bunkhouse attire against Dusty. And he came out of the dressing room like a madman. And they had a big, classic, amazing match. And then he went after me after the match. (laughs) He knew who I was and everything, but he came right after me. And this time, I was not willing to risk it because he looked serious. And I ran. Mm. And everyone knows that Terry Funk gets into character. He's the nicest guy. And then during the match... Nothing's off limits. I still don't believe he would really hurt anybody. But just to be safe on that one night, he looked pretty scary in 89. (laughs) I I don't think there's probably any stories of him doing attacking any photographer for real. I really don't because he's a nice guy. But that was the reputation back then. You don't let Terry Funk catch you. As far as cool things and incidents, I mean, there's been like a million of them. Yeah, because being in the business for that long, things must just happen. And especially like you've been across the territory. So you got to see wrestling in its probably in its glory days before McMahon had finally run the territories out of the business, which is one of the greatest, I think, crimes in the history of wrestling. You don't get that variety in wrestling anymore. It's WWE and whatever version of that area of the country is putting on what they view as WWE. Yeah, because, you know, in the old days, one of the greatest parts of the business was the exotic wrestling, the wrestling that was not germane to your territory, which was like, you know, all we had in the old days was our local TV show and the magazines. And for us really, really smart fans, like I said before, before even the term smart fan was coined, was the bulletins that used to come out, ring around. I don't remember. I remember Dropkick from Jeff Zinger. I don't remember a lot of the names, but that's all the wrestling fan had. So let's say that you're in Florida and Gordon Soley says, coming into the area very soon, it's going to be Mr. Wrestling 2, Baron Von Raschke. And you get so excited because you never had the opportunity to see these guys before. You couldn't get on YouTube and look up the Sheik. You had to go pay for a ticket to see him or see the one promotional clip that they sent to Florida or rely on the years of magazines that featured the Sheik killing people and throwing fire and doing all these things and looking like a maniac. And it made kayfabe so much more real because I always say, you know, just going by the magazines, if, you, if that was all you had to go off of, which it was, you would think that Mil Mascaris was the most amazing. You would think that he was like Jushin Liger and he wasn't. Mil Mascaris had like three moves where he flew 
And today they're not even considered flying moves, although they were photogenic and he did cut quite a figure. I'm not taking anything away from Mill, but I'm saying by the style of work at the time, you would think that he's literally flying like a, like a cartoon person or something like he was from outer space. But then when you saw him in person, you were invariably let down because it never was as good as what the magazines led you to believe they would be. So when Baron Von Raschke came to Florida, disappointment. Here I see him in the magazines, dressed up like a Nazi, juicing people with his claw. And then he showed up and he was like, eh, not that great. Mr. Wrestling 2, worse than that. The legend, oh, with the, like the greatest good guy, Lillian Carter's favorite wrestler. He was not that great. Maybe, maybe there was a time in his career when he was, but in Florida in 1981, 82... I always looked like an old man in his underwear. And, you know, you weren't smartened up to the fact that in 1980, the sheet was like in his 50s and washed up and the match was going to go five minutes. You didn't know that. You saw the sheet and you thought there was going to be blood and fire. You're welcome, Brian Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's amazing how much even wrestling magazines have changed from the 80s to now because – in the 80s, I always remember that's where you saw the blood. That's where you saw these characters, yeah. like especially us growing up in the Northeast. We were used to WWF wrestling, so vaguely cartoony. Then when TBS <laughs> came in, you're like, who the fuck are these guys? What did you think when you saw the TBS? How did you compare and contrast? The I, I loved TBS wrestling. It didn't matter if it was WCW Saturday night. Now that like I hear podcasts talk about it, they talk about, oh, Saturday night, how maybe it wasn't the A show. But to me, I was always like, that's my shit. That's where I found Bobby Eaton before he was even yeah. he was outside of the Midnight Express. That's when I found early Steve Austin, Rick yeah. Flair, who I hated. But at the same time, I'm like, there is something so cool about this guy. I can't put it down, but why do I hate him so much? I'll tell you what, real quick, though. Like, grew up on WWF, NWA. I saw NWA come in. Love that. AWA, not as much as NWA, but for a brief period, we got Mid-South Wrestling in New Jersey on some cable channel, and I was blown away at what I was seeing. All these guys that would go to WWF that I already knew, because they also had a thing called the Power Hour or something where they would look back at some of the people and some of the matches from before. And Jim Ross, that's the first time I heard him. And it was just amazing. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. And that would have been around 86. We yes. got the Power Hour down here, too. They were syndicated, and that was great. Bill Watts' production was a kick-ass wrestling production because Watts learned from Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham learned from Dory Funk Sr. And what those three territories have in common, Amarillo, Florida, and UWF, we're presenting wrestling as a serious sport. And that's why, you know, the old, they presented it like when they, when they showed the old clips of Florida it, from the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory or whatever it might be, it was like an NFL film. It had the gravitas of like an NFL Vince Lombardi film or something like Dusty at the, at the Fort Hesterly versus Harley Race or whatever. And so all of those territories the bill watts the eddie graham they presented it as a serious sport which is the antithesis of vince as we know so i think intrinsically you were looking for a grittier more realistic hard-hitting product and if you think wcw saturday night was something or or watts which nothing to take away from that you should have seen florida in the 70s 
which I think my two favorite territories ever and the periods therein would be Florida 70s, which I say from about 75 to 80 and Memphis, like 82 through 85. Those are my two favorite territories for excitement, action. And I, I'm not going to say that Memphis presented things in a realistic fashion, but my trips to Memphis, which I took in 83, 84 and 85 were the most fun exciting trips. I had more fun in Memphis for a total of eight or 12 weeks, however long I was ever there than I did with years of Florida because Jerry, the King Lawler would pal around with you and just be down to earth backstage. And we were hanging out with Eddie Gilbert, Lance Russell, Jimmy Hart, just like normal people, but they were their characters. So it wasn't normal people. (laughs) When you're seeing those guys, that's them. And Florida was not like that. Dusty would come in the dressing room and say, you guys got to get out of here. And Dusty was like, so, I mean, Florida was not a fun backstage environment. I mean, as far as I was concerned, every time I was backstage, I thought every time I walked to the ring or went backstage for anything, I said, this could be the last time I ever do this. Because I was just always ready to get fired. I was just always ready to get like, told you're done and so i minded my p's and q's i just like every minute i was there backstage doing something or whatever i was like you better take it in because the day is going to come when they tell you you're gone because it was so precarious i wasn't there under any official circumstances i wasn't working for a magazine i was just a kid and kevin sullivan was one of the guys a lot of the guys were very friendly and everything but the higher ups were not like you know dusty Everyone else was cool. I mean, Dusty was part of the promotion, but when I was a kid, I used to hang around in the back with Kevin Sullivan, whoever, but everybody was really cool. Scott McGee, Barry Windham, like I said, I don't know how I got onto this, but yes, gritty wrestling, gritty wrestling is where it was at. And and just, I was raised on that. So anything lesser than that is, is, is a preposterous embarrassment to me. Speaking of an embarrassment and things going downhill, let's finish up by talking about Ric Flair's last match. It occurred last weekend. It was the talk of the wrestling, I'd say world. And <clears throat> I love the rest of the card. I thought the thing was put together well. I don't know what I expected out of Ric Flair's last match, but what I got wasn't it. And I almost felt sad for participating in a way, like being there. Yeah. And it was tough because he was one of the best. I'm all for somebody going out on their own notes, having wanting to do it under Crockett promotions who he never got to go out well with, but I don't know what he expected in the ring. But what we got was, I'd say, kind of jarring to like an actual fan. Now that I've had a couple of days to digest it, the night that I saw it, a part of me literally died. And I said, well, this is just, I felt sad, complicit. Not that I paid for it. I just watched like a free recap on YouTube or something. But here's the deal. Leading into it, I said, there's no upside. Mm. What can be gained? And they gave this man the greatest send-off, not in wrestling, but in sports history. Mm. It was a week-long celebration of everything Flair. As a human being, at that point, if he was a normal human being, he should have been so happy that he accomplished something. Now he's in his 50s. He can just coast. That's what Buddy Rogers did. All Buddy Rogers had to do the rest of his life was show up, look cool, and you're the man for life. As Flair said, 
called Over for Life, but Ric Flair never knew himself as a person, and he derives his worth only from being Ric Flair the wrestler. So he is forced to keep himself preserved in amber as the 1985 Ric Flair, which I've accomplished nothing in my life compared to Ric Flair, and I'm ready to rest on my laurels. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that man would have such a problem resting on his laurels if I had that many reams of videotape, photos, magazine covers, most decorated, coolest wrestler of all time. Now you fast forward to 2022. And as far as a match, I said, there's nothing to be gained. Why do it? And then he hoodwinked me because they showed him doing his quarter rep squats Mm-hmm. 500 at a time, which I'm sure the camera just like they turned it on at 490 or something. <laughs> but I thought, now we saw we we saw Luthez as an old man and he sucked. We saw Dory Funk Jr. as an old man and he sucked. And everyone's like, oh, but it's Ric Flair. Now, my big question, and this is the time to pay attention, folks, because I know I've been rambling about this, but this is the main point I want to make about the Ric Flair thing is this, okay? At what point? Did Flair or his handlers realize that he was in no condition to go? And by go, I mean, not be amazing in the ring. Nobody's expecting Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid. But I mean, he looked bad from the second he came out, and it only went worse from there. By the time he got into the ring, he was disheveled. Couldn't even keep his robe on. Couldn't even get into the ring by the time they had to hand him the brass knucks, he was so out of it that he looked like the dad in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when they were trying to give him the hammer to hold, to hit the girl over the head with. And so the question is this. I don't begrudge Ric Flair. I don't think it was wise. I don't know if it's if it's his fault. I don't know if it, how much, who is really in control here? I'm not here to crap on Conrad, his family, his handlers, his enablers. I don't know what combination of alcoholism, mental deficiencies on Flair's behalf, esteem problems. I don't know what combination, but I would really like to know. A lot of people say it's a cash grab. And I'm like, no, I think it's more important for Flair to just feel like Ric Flair, to be in the news, to be training, to have the eyes on him, and to be known as a wrestler, not as a pitch man for wings, boner pills, the car thing he's doing, anything that would come along, put Ric Flair in some cheap looking Halloween robe of a Ric Flair outfit and parade him out there. Ric Flair drip, like so many things where he doesn't belong. But fine. That's what he should be doing at this age. But his ego would not have that. I would like to know if on the day of the show, was he drunk? Is it because he hurt his foot? Could he not go this entire time? And he knew it and they know it. And they just pretended he could go because he didn't even come out there and woo or strut. That's all the people would have needed or wanted. Just a woo and a strut with some energy behind it. But he could not even do that. And if that's the case, I do feel like it's a cash grab. Because if he or everyone else knew that he couldn't go to the extent that he couldn't even come out there and exert himself saying a woo and doing a convincing strut. That's just bad and sad. And that's really all I have to say. It's a tragedy that that took place. You want to go out on your own terms? He did. Why ruin it? He doesn't know when to say quit. And I think 
that was the saddest part of this. Like I saw Ric Flair's last match and I'm like, is it? And after this one, if there's another one, there's no money to be made there. I can't see any wrestling fan hearing that again and saying like, that's worth checking out. It might be aside from the rest of the card. That match was one of the sadder things I've ever seen. Well, let me tell you something. That was the saddest, most soul crushing. Just, I mean, in real life, there's a lot of Ric Flair's and asshole stories going around. I don't have any of my own, but there's enough stories where he's not great to deal with financially, whatever. But can we at least, can some of us keep a piece of our childhood? Like believe in something? Does everything have to be desecrated? There was no upside to him doing that. Unless it was, unless he was going to be the greatest old man match ever. And I held out a little hope for that. He's Ric Flair. And he, 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 he showed everyone what great shape he was in on those little videos. Yeah. So, I mean, even I bought into it, like, I never thought of it from a business or financial or a cash grab standpoint. I always saw it for what I think drives Flair, which is psychologically... He has to be Ric Flair, the wrestler, to have any self-worth whatsoever. That's where he derives all of his ego fulfillment from, which is sad because if anyone deserves to coast on their name, it's Ric Flair. Now he took that away from us, and he really did. And I mean, if you look even at the comments on Ric Flair's own page, it's divided into two camps, which is, oh, so glad for you, champ. You did it, blah, blah, blah. Because I think they were just happy to see him survive. (laughs) And then everyone else is like, man, you never should have done that. And in his bubble, I believe in his bubble, which is buoyed by ego and alcohol, I bet he thinks he did great. And more power to him. He's Ric Flair. And he was one of my boyhood idols. And this thing was so pointless. If anybody could tell me an upside to it, I'd, I'd be more than happy. Because I didn't expect a great match. But this was so much worse than I would have bargained for. And I've never felt like a weird combination of like sick, like really sick in a way and guilty for like viewing it. Like it was, it was, it was like elder exploitation combined with a freak show. It was just sad. And then for anyone to put it over is just insane. Thank you for coming on. Before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to promote what you'd like to promote. But is there any chance we could get you to promote in the Don Morocco voice? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's a let me. T- it's a, it's a behind the curtain industry secret. Don Morocco imitation requires a lot of weed and Jack and Coke. <laughs> so I can't say that I am prepared at this point in time <laughs> now i wouldn't be i wouldn't be doing it a service if I, I i every time i try to do it on the fly it's not as good so i don't want to diminish the character of the magnificent one no problem so, i uh, had to ask but promote what you'd like to promote and where can people find you just for right now we're planning on launching the hardwayart.com site in time for all your christmas shopping For right now, in the meantime, I beseech you people, either look me up on Facebook. I think my name is right beneath me right now. Or Hardway Art, H-A-R-D-W-A-Y-A-R-T. Also on Facebook, I have a ton of my artwork, photos, a little uh, sample of what you can expect in the future. 
And that's about it. That's really all I can promote right now. So mahalo and go fuck yourself. (laughs) Howard, thank you for the laughs. Thank you for what you do. And we are sure that our fans will check out Hardway Art in time for Christmas. Have a good night. So long from the Sunshine State. Thank you. All right, so that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's WorkingFansWrestlingPod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, WorkingFansWrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please continue to listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcast, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 